have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guest that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917 889 3675. So sit back, relax, and remember Southern Sense is common sense. emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and click on the icon 
for My Patriot Food. All right, and welcome to another adventure here on Southern Sense. I'm your hostess with the least most of the radio chick, Annie, along with my courageous co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. You're listening live on Blog Talk Radio, GERN, right. Global Entertainment Radio Network. Hi, Daryl, uh, as well as up on Facebook, YouTube, uh, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, iHeartRadio, and half a dozen other freaking places I can't even remember. Just go to the name of our show. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Curtis, are you ready for a wacky, wacky Friday? Hey, I got one eye on the studio panel and another eye on the storm called Fred that's approaching Florida. But, yeah, I'm ready. Yeah, it's going to hit us sometime around uh, Monday morning, uh, tropical storm. Wow. So it's, it's, it's not going to be much of anything. Come on. It's a little piss okay. in the bucket. <laughs> yeah, that's what they said about one of those other ones that turned that into a monster. <laughs> Caught everybody off guard. But we'll see. Mm. We'll see. Mm. All right. Well, after last week's debacle, uh, I think we're up and running perfectly fine today. It's Friday the 13th. Thank you, Duck, for reminding us. It also happens to be the birthday of my grandfather, my mother's father. Uh, who passed away back in 75, and it's also my older brother's birthday. Everyone has to have a liberal in the family, and he is the liberal in the family. So I guess that's why he was born on Friday the 13th. (laughs) Oh, man. It's going to be one of these days. Oh, man. And uh, yes, Sarge, we're going to be probably somewhere along the way, we're going to be talking about Hunter Biden and the two missing stolen laptops. (laughs) Oh, not Hunter. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, come on. Some of this stuff, you just cannot make it up. If you saw it in a Hollywood movie, you're going, oh, wow. I mean, the script writer is really stretching the imagination here. But when you see it happening in real life and you see the shenanigans that are going on out there lately, you just go, you go, am I in, in an alternative universe? Really? <laughs> it's just like... Maybe is something in the water that we're drinking? Is it the Kool Aid? What is it? I mean, it's just you just can't make half the stuff up. Oh man! Anyway, we got ourselves a rock and rolling show today. And if anyone wants to know what happened to the interview with Kevin Sorbo, I spliced it into the video. I tried to repair the video from last week as best as possible. So it is up on YouTube and Facebook. For how long? I don't know, because Facebook gave me a hard time about putting it up. It took me four tries, and I kind of like snuck it past them, so I'm hoping it's still up there. Uh, but it, I will find a way to put it up onto my webpage uh over the weekend it was an excellent interview even though there was a lag in the video ah i mean i I, talk about having bad luck this year i mean everything and anything that could possibly happen to me has happened but i've been trying to get my internet service upgraded and the current service i have does not have the speed and capacity i need to do the type of video uh, broadcasting that i do want to do and bring the show up to the next notch. Uh, So I finally, you know, Xfinity, which is Comcast, back in June 16th, started to initiate the new installation of the new service. It has taken them two months, 
multiple phone calls to the corporate office, which is here in the United States. You actually talk to Americans when you dial the phone. And finally, finally this week, they got the cable attached to the public service box across the street, finally bored the wire underneath the street and onto my property and ran it up to the service box at the back of my house. Now all I have to do is just get someone to come out here and connect the wires to the box and run everything into the house and get me up and running. So, fingers crossed, maybe within the next two weeks, Curtis, we may be able to up our game and get out the video production and have it look really nice and really professional. So, we're getting there, folks. It's taking a long time, and I've been talking about this since January, but we're going to get there, Curtis. We are going to get there. Good, good. That that better um, give me more time to, to find a makeup artist. <laughs> <laughs> Just wear a Clinton mask and tell them you bleached yourself. <laughs> yeah, I can do that. Anyway. Oh, Obama. No, no, no. A Michael Jackson, remember? Oh, yeah. And anyway, we've got lined up today Dr. Salvatore Giorgiani. Uh, he is a senior science advisor with Men's Health Network. And we were supposed to have Kevin McCleary, I'm sorry, McGarry of Every Black Life Matters. And believe me, when you hear that title, it's not what you think. Instead, he had something else going on today. So he sent his partner, the vice president of Every Black Life Matters, Neil Mammon. We've had him on in the past, and you'll be amazed about what this organization does. And we're having Karen Watson come back because we didn't have enough time to talk with her last week. Uh, She's with GOP Buzz. She was the former uh, chairwoman, I believe it was the Dallas GOP, Dallas County GOP, down in Texas. And Mark Tapscott is going to be joining us again. We will not have someone from Heritage Foundation because their offices are basically closed. Uh, everyone's like on a little vacation. And after the nutso stuff that's been going on, I don't blame them. <laughs> Everyone needs a little time off. But we got ourselves a rocking and rolling good show lined up, Curtis. Well, that's great. I'm looking forward to it. All right. So let's get on with the serious side of the show. And everyone knows that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And a lot of times, these heroes do not fall in one fell swoop. Sometimes it takes them a long time to succumb to their injuries. And these are the true heroes that I admire the most. Today's dedication is going to go out to Deputy Sheriff Stanley Allen Burdick of the Douglas County Sheriff's Office out of Oregon. His end of watch was Thursday, March 11th of this year, 2021. And this is from The World by David Keldis. And it reads, More than 40 years after he was shot twice in the line of duty, a Douglas County Sheriff's deputy has died. And Sheriff John Hanlon said his death was directly related to the injuries he sustained in 1980. Hanlon announced over the weekend that retired deputy Stanley Allen Burdock 
died on March 11th, saying he was saddened by the line of duty death. Burdick began his law enforcement career in 1976 when he was hired by the Canyonville Police Department. He served in that position until July of 1979 when he was hired as a deputy with the Douglas County Sheriff's Office. On August 12, 1980, Burdick responded to a report of a shooting at the Nutshell Tavern in Myrtle Creek. Sometimes early in the morning of August 13th, Burdick located the suspect, Jack Flack, at a gravel turnout north of the Myrtle Creek Bridge near Interstate 5. The suspect opened fire on Burdick, striking him twice. Flack then stole Burdick's patrol car, running over his legs while fleeing the scene. Flack was later captured convicted, and sentenced to 40 years in prison for attempted murder and other charges. Burdick sustained serious injuries from his gunshot wounds, including one that grazed his spine. Due to his injuries, he was unable to return to full work as a deputy and was medically retired in 1982. He briefly returned to the Canyonville Police Department from July of 1984 to November of 1985 before his ongoing pain from his injuries forced him to retire for good. His family said he suffered extreme pain for much of his life, walked with a limp, and never fully recovered from the incident in 1980. Sheriff Hanlon said his sacrifice will not be forgotten. Deputy Burdick's sacrifice while in service to the citizens of Douglas County, no matter the span of time between the shooting and his death, cannot go unmentioned, Hanlon said. We will honor him, his family, and his memory, and never forget what happened to this deputy on August 13, 1980. Burdick's memorial service was on Saturday, April 17th, at the Tri-City Baptist Church. He was accorded full law enforcement honors, the service. And from NR Today, by Donovan Brink of the News Review. Honesty, faith, humor, love. These were just a few of the words used to describe Stanley Allen Burdick, a Douglas County Sheriff's Office deputy who was wounded in a shooting and ultimately died from his injuries. Friends, family, and fellow law enforcement officers gathered at the Tri-City Baptist Church to remember the life of Allen Burdick, who died at the age of 65, nearly 40 years after he was wounded in the line of duty on a fateful night in August 1980 when he encountered a suspected shooter at the Myrtle Creek Tavern. Burdick sustained serious injuries from the gunshot wounds, including from a bullet that injured his spine. He developed a limp and was partially paralyzed in one arm after the incident. The injuries prevented his return to his position as a deputy, and he was medically retired. He was truly kind and humble man, said Earl Burdick, Allen's wife of 36 years, 
I was so blessed to be his companion and his wife for 36 years. He was brave. He was my hero. He was my dearest friend. He was just a guy, like any guy. But he did have God's spirit in him, Erla said, during the eulogy. No, what, no matter what happened to him, he was determined that he would never waver from his faith. Not the shooting, not the pain, nothing. Chris, Chris Burdick had been adopted by Alan when he was just six years old. One day, he was helping his former stepdad turned dad with a project at the Glendale home. Chris said Alan insisted that Chris grab that brick. Chris told the crowd he had no idea what brick his dad was talking about, so he went and grabbed one. The brick he grabbed was serving as a wheel chalk for the family's boat trailer. The trailer started going downhill backwards, and he ran over, grabbed the trailer, and pulled it back up the hill, Chris said. I always called him Alan because that's how he was introduced to me. But he was my dad. No matter how long, he was my dad. Following a sharing of memories from those gathered, Pastor Rick Smith read a passage from the Bible, specifically chosen by Alan, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Earl Bertie read from a poem she had written in 1997 entitled Going Home, which she said was fitting for her late husband. I'm no longer here. My body is gone. But no that my spirit lives on. The Douglas County Sheriff's Office flag team performed the ceremonial unfolding of the flag, which af- after which taps was played, before the flag was folded and presented to Erlock Birdie by Douglas County Sheriff John Hanlon. Today's show is dedicated to Deputy Sheriff Burdock. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. It is also dedicated to the brave men and women that serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into our hopeful future. We dedicate to each and every one of them this song by Todd Allen Herndon, My Name is America. May God bless each and every one.
life of oppression I fought for my liberty I paid with the blood of my people Freedom has never been free Now my door's always open To dreamers and friends
are back. You're, you're listening to Southern Sense live on Blog Talk Radio, SHI Media, Global Enlightenment Radio Network. Hi, Daryl. Uh, well, as iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, iHeartRadio, and half a dozen other places. I have no idea. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. All right, Curtis will be back with us in just a moment. He's calling our next guest, and we have so much to talk about today, and we are going to be really busy. Holy moly. I mean, I don't even know where to start, but anyway, let us get my act together as I look for my paperwork. Here we go. All right, let's bring in a fellow paisano. Uh, my grandmother would say he's a nice and Italian boy, I know. <laughs> Dr. <laughs> Salvatore Giorgiani. Good afternoon, Dr. Giorgiani. How are you today? I'm doing great, and thank you for having me back on your program today. You're making my grandmother's heart just flip over in heaven because she's going, I know, she's talking to a nice Italian boy. You be nice to him. <laughs> So Anucci, yes, my grandmother was known as Mary, but her real name was Maruzza. But of course, in Ellis Island, they couldn't say Maruzza, so she became Mary. <laughs> well, my grandmother had a nickname for me. She used to call me Anucci, even though it's Anne Marie. <laughs> but then again, she called me my mother's name, my sister's name, my cousin's name. <laughs> there you it's go. a little, it gets a little confusing in an Italian family. Uh, you Indeed. are a senior. You're a senior science advisor with Men's Health Network, and uh, you have like a, a, a calling and a cause to help men and boys uh, to develop holistically, healthily, and faithfully. Uh, tell us about this. Men's Health Network has uh, been around for almost 27 years. It's the largest health group that advocates and educates uh, individuals about the overall health of men. We we cover, as you say, holistically. It's not just about between the knees and the beltway. It's the overall health of men and boys that are important to us. And we provide, well, when we could, without the issues of COVID impinging on our work, but we still work hard to do it virtually, we provide information and support where men live, work, play, and pray, and we uh, take the focus on helping men and boys and their families attain better health and wellness. It is a good cause because we do have an attack on manhood here in America. It's, it's, I'm trying to think of a polite way, but a way of gelding men into submission. And, and male superiority is, wait a minute, you know, Traditionally, if you think about how humankind developed, men traditionally were the protectors and the providers of a family while the women were the nurturers. And for some reason, our society is kind of like mixing up gender roles to a point where it's no longer healthy. We need to have some sort of a figure to help guide men to make, retain their manhood. Yes, there's, there's, a, there's a significant amount of information, data, uh, and I believe truth in the matter that boys uh, do well when they have a role model figure within the family unit that they can they can identify with and then they can model their behaviors with. Now, in some cases, unfortunately, that role model is a not a good role model, 
uh, and that is, you know, a reality we have to deal with. But in the majority majority of cases, uh, men in families and in communities are good role models, uh, but that sometimes is depre- their, their role is uh, depre- deprecated uh, in society these days for lots of reasons which I think are not healthy to the to the young men coming up. And also a lot of it falls on media too. And when you look at, uh, I, I did a program, or I'm sorry, a study several years ago where I looked at print media advertising about health and healthy products to men, boys, and uh, whether it's designed for boys and men, women and girls, or they were neutral. And over 75% of the health advertising uh, that we catalog, it was print advertising now, was geared towards women and girls, and uh, 10% was uh, geared in neutral, and then there was maybe 13 to 15% that was directed at boys and men. So when you look at the, the role society attributes to guys now, the, the messages about health that are distributed to them in the very powerful advertising media, they are very, very, uh, unfortunately, very, very injurious to building up healthy, active, uh, and self-confident, family-oriented men. Well, you know, if you, if you look at the peer pressure we're getting from media, from Hollywood, uh, from local, you know, rap artists, whatever else is out there, the pressure that is on these guys um, to behave in a certain mannerism, and I, I would put it all the way back to LBJ's Great Society experiment he had when he came up with welfare and created generational poverty just for the vote. Um, they created a situation where the father figure was not important in the house anymore, and dependence upon government was more paramount than dependence upon your faith, your church, and your community. And they did a huge separation, and they've created a hole in a great number of family lives where now the father no longer exists in the house, and the mother now has several different baby daddies and the more babies you have the more welfare you get and the more public service you get you don't have to work it's created a whole cycle generation after generation that's very difficult to break yes it is very difficult to break and many of the rules and regulations that have been set up since that time do not favor men uh, being in a household uh, in fact Single women fare much better in terms of trying to get support for their families if there's not a man in the in the household, and that that really is uh, just sends the wrong message to everyone. I I, I think that uh, young men who come from stable traditional families are also being put off by a lot of the rhetoric uh, that we see about their their roles within the family. Uh, we uh, were used to the father knows best figure, uh, but even if you look carefully at those older television programs, the the man is frequently portrayed as a hapless soul. Even in Father Knows Best and Danny Thomas and show and some of the shows from the 50s, which we often refer to as strong family units, 
they were often put to shame by the by the mom in the family, and that sends you know a bad message today. Uh, if you watch advertising or television programs, the guys usually are not the swiftest or uh, or the brightest bulb in the family pack. There's usually the mom. So I think in efforts to try and, and rightfully provide equity, uh, good opportunity for young women uh, coming up, and I'm a father of two wonderful daughters who are very, very successful in business. Uh, but I think in the efforts to try and provide women the message that they are important, that they are contributors to society, that they can reach their life goals and they should aim high, we somehow have done it. Not so that both male and female feel good about themselves and their opportunity, but that guys somehow felt that portrayed as disposable units, uh, the, the brunt of the joke, uh, or the hapless soul that the, the mom uh, pulls out of deep water. You, know, you said a mouthful there. You know, then you add on to there the recent trend, especially coming out of TV, Hollywood, and we can also blame Al Gore for this brilliant idea that the kids know better than the adults. Well, somehow or other in society, the children are making the decisions and the adults, the parents, are the idiots, the dummies. They don't know what the heck they're talking about. And somehow or other, the kids are in control. Um, this is where you let the inmates of the insane asylum rule the roost and everyone else just walks away and leaves the doors unlocked. You know, somehow or other, our society has gotten it backwards. Yeah, we, um, we have similar observations, Men's Health Network, uh, that what, what you're saying is true. Um, and... I don't know how we pull back on some of that in this society now with woke culture. And one of the areas of concern is uh, this whole uh, notion of gender uh, gender identity uh, and then gender specification that we're seeing a trend for, despite what the parents say, that many educators, psychologists, uh, uh, civil and civic uh, leaders believe that children as young as two, three, five years old have the ability or the understanding or the foresight to make definitive selections about their gender identity at that tender age, even at 16. So I think we, when, when you look at many other aspects of uh, even in healthcare for women, uh, the ability to uh, have uh, get contraceptives without parents' permission uh, is something that's being pushed for avidly in many areas. Uh, same for abortions without parents' permission. Uh, and when you look at the with the boys, is far less far less lateral view being given to the boys. They they seem to be getting the short end of the stick when the term comes to decision making, where usually it's parents or guardians. So I think that yes, we're where uh, developing a society where men's traditional roles are being usually characterized as sick and toxic masculinity, or guys are told that being masculine is bad, what you need to be is more emotionally sensitive, you need to be more like women, 
Uh, and that, I think, is, is very confusing to a lot. And I don't necessarily think it serves society very well. Now, there are things I will say that are bad uh, and not wholesome and, I suppose, toxic characteristics that some men uh, have. But that is not the character. Those are not the characteristics in the majority of men. Well, you know, I I found it amazing because uh, we have this gender dysphoria epidemic. There's nothing other way to say it. But if we look at back at the history of these type of phases that kids go through, uh, we had it back in the 70s and 80s with bulimia anorexia and then through the 90s we had a spat of pregnancies with kids in junior high and high school now the fad is to be one of the in kids you have to have a gender dysphoria you have to be one of 72 different genders again they're letting the inmates in the insane asylum be in charge kids do not have the ability to make these decisions and i believe it was the new england journal of medicine that published a study a couple years back i think it was then uh that found that the human brain is not fully sexually developed until the age of 27 And at one point in time, when we started doing these gender reassignment surgeries back in the 50s and 60s, you had to go through a battery of mental screening and consultation and testing. You had to jump through hoops before you finally got the first surgery. We no longer do that. There's no mental exam. You go in and say, well, I feel like I'm not a boy, I'm a girl. However, the trend used to be when you had gender dysphoria, it usually was the boy, not very few, very, very few in girls. But now the overall, something like about 75, 80% are girls thinking that they're boys and wanting to have the surgery as children. Now, what, I, what really puts my heart uh, a beating that maybe there's hope, there's a... Uh, um, article in the epic times this week by alan stein where um governor greg abbott god bless his soul had directed the department of family and protective services to do a study and make a determination and the deputy the department's commissioner jamie masters replied with his findings stating quote gentle mutilation of a child through reassignment surgery is child abuse The surgical procedure physically alters a child's genitalia for non-medical purposes, potentially inflicting irreversible harm to the children's body. Generally, children in the care and custody of a parent lack the legal capacity to consent to surgical treatments, making them more vulnerable. Boom. Someone gets it. Yes, a lot of people get it, but unfortunately they are drowned out by uh, much of the media who uh, over the decades. Now, you know, media, uh, we, we sort of look at it as uh, one entity, but really it's not a homogeneous entity. There are folks in the media who are a little bit older, uh, live in different generations, live in my generation, I'm eighth decade uh, of life. So there are folks in that. And there are others, individuals, but, and the dominant ones now who are doing much of the writing are very young uh, reporters uh, who have, over the uh, 
course of their educational career in the past 20 some odd years uh, been slowly indoctrinated into normalizing uh, these uh, uh, different notions about uh, gender identity. Uh, and so, of course, within the schools where much of this transpires, uh, because most education is run by liberal thinking uh, individuals, they they believe that it's normalized. Well, they've been taught that to normalize uh, alternative lifestyles uh, to the point where now I think there's a huge mistake being made to think that a 16-year-old or younger individual can make irreversible life-changing decisions at that age. We don't allow individuals to get married at, you know, at three years old. Uh, we don't allow individuals to buy guns at 16 years old. There are a lot of things that we don't allow younger people to do because it's clear they don't have the knowledge base, the mental maturity, and they are too easily swayed uh, until they get to a major majority. Uh, so I think we see this very curious dichotomy of what allow children decisions to make in gender identification and role models as to what we allow them to do when they, or bar them, prohibit them from doing until they get to a more sensible age. Oh, absolutely, Don't absolutely. Please. Now, you, I was going to just curse. I was just going to throw in to this okay. whole dichotomy that with the COVID lockdowns, kids are no longer interacting socially like they had pre-pandemic. Yes. And when they do interact socially, they're forced to wear a mask where they have a hard time reading facial expressions. So they're relying Correct. on going online, and all of a sudden now, your value is how many people you have following you on TikTok or whatever the latest flavor of the month is on social media. And there, there is like um, iRobot, if you ever read Isaac Asimov's iRobot, where they no longer have the ability to interact human being to human being, but you're just a face on a screen. You're 140 characters in a message on Twitter. Somehow or other, you're losing your humanity and your ability to interact and socialize. Yes, I am also a big Isaac Asimov uh, fan. I think he was one of the brilliant writers of the, of the century. Uh, but you, we, we do see this, the social isolation, the change in the ability to interact with peers, the reliance on electronic um, uh, friendships or relationships has led to many, many problems that are going to take decades to, to address in our current children, because this is going on now almost two years, and we find greater uh, potential for sexual predators to uh, engage with youngsters. We find there was a very interesting study done by Blue Cross Blue Shield about two years ago that showed that millennials, the vast majority of millennials, 60% of them state that they have no friend. Now, can you imagine that, Annie? They have no close friend. Can you imagine growing up with no close friend uh, because they are in this uh, odd world of non-social social media? Uh, and when Men's Health Network has just uh, done a very large study of this work that was funded by an organization called PCORI, Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, uh, and we see a huge problem evolving 
uh, with the, the psychological profile of young men and women uh, who have been denied the traditional and important ability to socialize within schools, uh, athletic events, uh, community events, uh, and just even the playground where they've been basically shut off from that, and their lives now are lived like Tron. Remember that old Disney movie, Tron? Uh, Tron as in a virtual reality. Uh, And that is leading to, unfortunately, a huge rise in suicide in men. So it's not just the young uh, folks, but older folks, too, that are affected by this. And we're seeing a huge number of suicides in schools, there were some reports out of Nevada School District about six, eight months ago uh, where there was a, uh, an epidemic, if you will, of suicide of school-age children. Most of them were male, by the way, uh, so because they are lonely, isolated, don't have anyone to confide in. And with our cancel culture, adding on top of that, and the, what we all can appreciate, the uncertainties of teenage uh, life and the, the strong desire to fit in uh, how the cancel culture can create tremendous anxiety, depression, socialization stunting, uh, and uh, leading to a tremendous amount of mental health issues, serious ones that are not just depression and anxiety, but we see a large spike in suicide, particularly in men. Oh, Curtis, Dr. go ahead. Georgie. Okay. I grew up in a a day and age where the the roles of male and female, especially in the family unit, were well-defined. I know you mentioned shows like Danny Thomas. I I grew up watching things like that, Um, Love That Bob, and and things like that. But today's kids, they they are seen on television male on male and female on female type relationships and and it's I'm just wondering how confused these kids are getting and um the role it plays in in their development and and you did state social media and that's true too because a lot of kids are now trying to find affirmation by the number of likes they get just on social platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your thoughts on that? You're, you're absolutely right, Curtis. Um, uh, you know, you mentioned Love That Bob, as I recall, that program. Uh, he was a single parent. I think he was, he was either an adopted parent or a foster parent, but he was, he was a single parent who was coping with his own uh, lifestyle as a, quote-unquote, uh, bachelor in California uh, who worked with professional models all the time as a photographer trying to raise, uh, you know, some kids, and you have – uh, the other pro, John Forsythe bachelor father, I think it was. Uh, so I think we have, even back then in the good old days of the 50s, we had atypical family units, but it was always a family unit that relied on very important, very solid, very uh, uh, reflective role models of guys who were always trying to do the right thing uh, and it, and it and the messages were consistent across the television and the program and the media. Now you're right. Uh, depending on what your kid watches, uh, they may not even be watching tele- broadcast television. They could be watching streaming programs. 
They could be watching YouTube programs. There's a, a plethora, a huge number and variety of lifestyles being portrayed as normal. So when a child is trying to fix their notions of what normal, normalized behavior looks like in society today, they are, of course, confused because they see everything being portrayed as normal. Uh, I think there was a, a, a group of uh, male gay, gay men, uh, a choir or a singing group some month or so ago who uh, posted something and said, yes, we are trying to change your kids. We are trying to win them over to our way of thinking. So I think we, we also see some of these huge lifestyle uh, and choices, uh, range of choices being promoted because it's self-justification for those who have chosen that lifestyle to want to normalize it. So they feel that they've made the right decision for them, and, of course, it's got to be the right decision for many others. So for them it's also positive affirmation to uh, ensure that their lifestyle is accepted by others. Uh, and I think that's very confusing to kids uh, because I think they have an inherent intuitive understanding that there are some things that seem right and feel right and some things that seem off and are off. Well, you know, they're being assaulted by so many different levels. Uh, the men's choir, I believe, was out of California, uh, and that, that yes. was disgusting. Just recently, I think in the last week or so, down in Palm Beach, Florida, uh, the, the sheriff's department and local deputies there uh, did a, a – a, a, um, oh, good Lord, I'm a retired cop. I can't even think of the word – a sting – where they ended netting, I think it was 18 or 19 uh, child molesters uh, by just trolling on the Internet pretending to be kids. And some of these guys showed up with condoms in their pocket expecting to have a yeah. – with these kids that were like as young as 12, 11, 12, 13. Um, we have now these transgender storybook hours at libraries and stuff. I mean, these kids are being exposed on so many different levels at such young ages that their minds really cannot comprehend what is being thrown at them. But yet it's going to mold who they become as they get older. And the parents are so irresponsible that they allow these children to be exposed to this, or they are that naive that they don't know that children are being exposed. Which is Well, I think you've got I think you've got well, I don't I'm not a sociologist, believe me. Uh, and I wonder myself about these things, but I do think we have, as with every other aspect of human life, you have a range of individuals, some who are clueless and naive, some who believe that their kid is making good choices and not my kid. Uh, we all grew up uh, with the not my kid wouldn't do that, the not my kid uh, parent model. Uh, and some are some actually believe uh, that their children should be exposed to all ranges of uh, social uh, comportment and that they do have the capacity uh, at young ages to make those choices. And I see stunning stories in the news occasionally where a parent, uh, usually a mom, says, yes, I think my Johnny or my Jane can certainly make that decision, and I encourage them and I support them. Uh, to make a decision for operation or, or, or other things. The sexual predators online 
one of the conferences that Men's Health Network did again with funding from Pecori, uh looked at the uh, foster children uh, of all the isolation associated with COVID, uh, and it's been devastating to them. Uh, and there, there are huge number of sexual predators out there, uh, and what is missing, particularly for some of the foster children and some of those who don't have traditional family structures or aunts and uncles who are engaged in, you know, the close family unit that lived in the general area and Aunt Sarah would take care of, uh, you know, Aunt, Uncle Bob's kid because uh, they would always watch, that there isn't a good role model and there isn't good, there isn't good oversight of what kids are doing because we have, face it, there's an economic need and a career need for two-income families, and it's very, very hard to manage an active 5, 6, 10, 17-year-old while you're managing a career or a, a, a very, very engaging job, whether you're working as a, a server in a restaurant or an, an executive in a Fortune 100 corporation. It's extremely hard. It's very energetic, and you have to be very much on your toes. So, uh, you know, you have a range of things going on that uh, are, I believe, uh, Men's Health Network believes because of the the degradation of the nuclear family, and by that I mean the, the, the close family as well as some of the extended family that all helped raise a kid. So now the village that's raising the kid is very much excludes oversight by parents in many, all too many cases. Well, you know, I want to throw in now because we have the COVID pandemic and it, it, it's been coming something that is very, very frightening. Now, there are a large number of people that get the vaccine. We encourage people that if you can, you know, go for it. But there's also a segment of our society that either wants the freedom of choice or for health concern reasons will not get the vaccine. Now, I sat down with my doctor, and then I followed up and sat down with my cardiologist, and both of them recommended, because of the different health conditions I have, to not do it. I'm a, I'm a very big risk factor. I did the same thing with my mom. I took her to the doctor, and I took her to her cardiologist, and the same thing, because she's a stroke victim. You know, there are those of us that will not be able to, because we're a high risk, but it mm-hmm. doesn't mean that if you get vaccinated and you do everything else that I'm going to infect you, does it? They're making us become a segregated society. And they want these vaccine passports to the point where Fauci had stated in his speech just the other day that he will get you vaccinated by any means necessary. Those are the words he used, by any means necessary. What is he going to do? Come over, handcuff me, tie me down to an examining table and give me a shot, which it sounds like he's willing to do. Or you have Joe Biden in his speech in this past week said, uh, if you don't get the vaccine, you don't work. And then we have the former governor of uh, California, Arnold Schwarzenegger, <laughs> with that brain surgeon, Vinman, the, the failed colonel, um, that turned around and said, screw your freedom. Do what government says. Now, this is the guy that was supposed to have been a conservative Republican, and he says, screw your freedom. Is this what our society has now 
fell into that we're going to be a segregated society. And if the vast number of people that are not getting uh, vaccinated are African-American because they're frightened, are you now going to have a new form of Jim Crow laws? Well, that is a huge, huge dilemma. Uh, You know, in medicine, it's generally considered, and I know Dr. Fauci knows this very well, uh, is considered unethical to get a patient to engage in a therapeutic or surgical procedure by scaring them. Uh, There have been innumerable uh, ethicists and essays on how bad it is to do things such as tell a diabetic, if you don't do this, we're going to have to cut your toes off in five years, so you better manage your diabetes better. Uh, So it's generally considered unethical and inappropriate to use scare tactics to get people to comply with what you feel is best for them because we still have the right of every patient, every person to self-determination, and that's a huge part of medical ethics. So why the AMA has not come, I hadn't hadn't heard him say that, but uh, given that he said that, that is a huge ethical lapse, which I am terribly surprised at. And, yes, public health, unfortunately, often tries to use uh, worry tactics to create, and here's anxiety, that shouldn't be there. It should be a good discussion. You know, if anybody wants to know what federally, uh, federal health care under a universal health care plan might look like, you've got a glimpse of it with what's going on with COVID. The way the federal government is administering it, using punishment, using derogatory material, using harsh tactics to get people to comply with their their desires and what they've determined is good for you, you will see uh, spread out into every disease condition. In no other disease condition, and do we have governors, congressmen, uh, civic officials telling us how to manage our cancer, what we need to do to treat our bowel obstruction, how we should, uh, uh, we have had some interesting experiments on managing diabetes and obesity where government has banned large sizes of soda as a solution to the obesity (laughs) crisis, which have certainly fell flat on its face, just like a six-week-old open can of Coca-Cola. So, but if you want to know what government health care will look like, take a look at what's going on with COVID. Uh, And yes, there are many individuals who cannot be vaccinated. That's one of the holes in Uh, these proposals and things that are being done in New York where you have to show proof of vaccination. There's also natural immunity, which matters. That counts. Dr. Senator Rand Paul is a big uh, proponent of that. And then there are many, many individuals such as yourself where under advice of their physician, they should not be vaccinated. And while you may need to mitigate, you know, maintain mitigation, safe distances where properly uh, masked, to, you know, protect yourself, uh, you should not be generally penalized uh, overall because this is beyond your control. Uh, And, of course, Americans should never be asked to give up all of their freedoms. And I understand the parallels that the good former Governor Schwarzenegger wants to make. Well, you just can't drive without 
you have to stop at red lights too, you know. But it's very, very different <laughs> when you're talking about this kind of a decision. Uh, so I, I do encourage people to be vaccinated. Men's Health Network is a strong proponent of vaccination and everybody that is individually able to. I think because I, the excuse, as I get from my uh, junior, college junior grandson, because no one's going to make me do what I don't want to do, Grandpa. Uh, that That's not a good reason to not get vaccinated. But I think there are other legitimate religious medical reasons that people can't be vaccinated. Well, you know, I had I had an incident recently. Um, I was supposed to go to a pain management specialist to have a series of injections on my back. And, again, I'm one of those freak of natures that, I cannot wear a mask any more than just a few minutes because I end up will end up having respiratory distress. It's not a panic. And I used to make my masks back in October of 2019 because I had friends in the Wuhan uh, province and they gave me a heads up. And Mm. I had been fully examined by the doctor. We went over everything and I just couldn't understand why I kept on getting respiratory infections. And I'm just one of those. So I wear a face shield. And I went for the first mm-hmm. injection. They gave me a little bit of a hard time. And I said, you know, fine, I'll wear it for the five minutes for that, you know, and then I just need to take it off. Otherwise, I'm going to start, you know, getting sick. I guess I have like a staph infection that just remains in my body and just I keep on inhaling it. I go for the second injection and they're having a huge freak out. Oh, yeah, we accommodated you last time. They put me in the examine room. And then a few minutes later, go. Unless you get a, a vaccine or wear a mask the entire time, you're going to have to re- make a new appointment until you are vaccinated. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. I mean, I stormed out of there so angry, and I'm waiting for myself to calm down. This was a week ago. I still am not calm yet. And I will fire off a letter because oh. I got so angry. And, and my mom was talking to me about it yesterday. She says, no, I have got to calm down first. But can you imagine that this is a medical staff? You're treating someone with a chronic condition. I, you know I've been examined. You know what my medical conditions are. And you still will insist I get vaccinated. I, th- this, this was just outrageous. Well, I, I, you know, I, I, I think it is uh, questionable behavior, right? I know there's always two sides to a story, so I hate to make an accusation that's unethical, but it, it sounds that this individual was behaving inappropriately, and um, that happens. It happens in medicine. It happens in law. It happens in uh, judicial systems. It happens in supermarkets and restaurants, uh, employees acting irresponsibly and inappropriately, and you just have to do as you're doing, complain and make it known, and stick to your guns. So what I tell people now is have a conversation with your with, with the physician you trust, a pharmacist, a nurse who is knowledgeable about these things, and everyone in the healthcare practices have, are very knowledgeable. We we all keep up with it because don't forget, COVID affects individual healthcare practitioners, their families, their loved ones, as well as their patients. So it's not like you know some uh, someone who doesn't have diabetes who's treating diabetes. The worries that you have as a potential COVID patient, your provider shares. And go to a provider local to your area who knows you, 
who knows your medical condition, who knows the circumstances in your locale, and they can make the best informed decision on how to guide you to make your own personal decisions about vaccination mitigation or how to get through all of this uh, until, uh, and I don't think it's really going to be passing for a while, uh, COVID uh, goes. And, in fact, I am of the belief that COVID is going to be endemic uh, and we're just going to have to learn how to deal with it over a period of the next three to five years. No, I, I agree with you. I agree with you because my doctor that I consulted had COVID. And my sister, who moved near me to help me because uh, my husband was very ill and I just recently lost him, not from COVID, uh, she had the long COVID along with her husband. So it's not something yes. I take very lightly. And this to me is very important. So I don't make these decisions lightly. But Dr. Giorgiani, people can find you at, up with articles over at Men's Health Network. And I want to thank you for joining us. I have a link to it here on the show page. So they can always read okay. about you and get a hold of you. And God bless you for the hard work you do, sir. And you is yours. And I'd be happy to be on any time I can be of help to you, or your Curtis, or your good listeners. Fantastic. Thank you, sir, very much. Enjoy your weekend, sir. And happy Friday the 13th. You as well. Annie, have a blessed day. Best weekend. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. All right. Dr. Giorgiani, check him out. There's a link up on the show page. Just click on his name and you will see him there. Let's welcome back to the show. It's been quite a while, so we're going to welcome back Neil Mammon. He's the vice president of every Black Life Matters. Good afternoon, Neil, and welcome back. Thank you. Thank you very much. Nice to be back. Now, um, I know I asked you this question, and I think it was like two years ago or something that you were last on, so I'm going to throw it at you again. You know, your organization is named Every Black Life Matters. Should it be Every Life Matters? Why Black Lives? Well, you're absolutely right. Every life does matter. But since we, there are a couple of reasons. There's going to be a couple of strategic reasons. One, we want to want it to be in the same lane as BLM, Black Lives Matter. And secondly, and, and just as important, see, BLM has recognized that there is a what we call something called Black plight. If you look at the Black community and certain other communities, but certainly the Black community is completely. Uh, different in economic status, in educational status, in uh, success status, compared to every other ethnicity. And it's not, and, and what we are trying to make sure people understand, it's got nothing to do with the color of the skin. We named it black simply because that's the way they, we, we identify, I mean, uh, black people identify themselves. But if you take a black Nigerian from Nigeria who moved here 20 years ago, 30 years ago, his income is almost double that of an African-American who grew up in the inner city, right? Uh, if you take uh, the average uh, Ghanaian, um, a person who comes, came from Ghana and came here, he moves up in the ranks, and his income is actually higher than many white American uh, ethnicities in America, right? So we see over and over again there's something special about the African-American community uh, that seems to be affecting them. And so what we said when BLM came up, and the idea for eBLM, or Every Black Lives Matter, came up, Came, uh, it came up when we were seeing some of our friends, Christian friends, going out and protesting with BLM. Not violently, but they were holding up their hands, and they had their kids with them holding up BLM signs. And, and my wife turned to me, and she's always the source of my best ideas. You know how that is. <laughs> so she said, <laughs> yeah. you know, somebody has to have an alternative. 
And she said, you should talk to the guys at the Frederick Douglass Foundation. You should talk to your friend Kevin McGarry, and you should tell him that they and the Frederick Douglass Foundation should start something that is the Christian alternative, the non-Marxist alternative, something that will actually solve the real problems of black plight. And so I called up Kevin and I said, hey, Kevin, he's the, he's the president and the co-founder. And I said, Kevin, we, you know, you guys at the Frederick Douglass Foundation need to start something because he was the chairman of the California Frederick Douglass Foundation. Well, they called up to the, you know, he called, you know, uh, Dean Nelson up in the National Frederick Douglass Foundation. And Dean said, you know, Kevin, that's a great idea, but we're so busy here. You and Neil need to start it. So Kevin calls me up and he says effectively, well, it's up to us to do it. You know, it's the old story, you know, you go to your pastor. So, you know, we really pastor, we really need a parking ministry. And the pastor says, great, you're appointed, right? So that's exactly <laughs> yep. what happened Ooh, to you're us, it. right? You're it. <laughs> We're it. And I, and I turned to Kevin. I said, Kevin, you know, I, I don't know if you noticed this, but I'm not black. And he said, no, but you are African-American. You see, I was born and brought up in in Africa. In fact, I was born in Ghana. I grew up in Sudan, Ethiopia, and I spent you know, three years in Jamaica, in fact, as a kid. So he said, you're more African than I am, so you're I dubbed the part of this. So we ended up founding this. And the whole idea is, let's go and look, why are African Americans, you know, why is it that um, the literacy rate, I mean, I, it's kind of funny, because if you look back in history, back at the height of racism, right, uh, the literacy rate in the African American community back in the 1930s, um, and even as far as the 50s, was somewhere in the 70 percentile, right? 70 percent were literate. I mean, they could read, write, they could function completely. And most of that was self-taught. And then suddenly, now if you look at the African-American literacy rate, we're lucky if it's in the 17 percent or the 18 percent. Uh, so something has happened. What has gone, what has destroyed, you know, and then now their uh, median income is somewhere in the 30, 35,000 range. Now, what's funny about that is we definitely know this is not about color because, if racism could keep the literacy rate at 70 and, and in the Civil Rights Act, uh, Act come, kicks in, and now the literacy rate's gone down to 16, to, I'm sorry, 17 to 18%, and Nigerians and Indians, Indians, by the way, my ethnicity is Indian, even though my culture is African, um, Indians have the highest uh, income average. The median income for Indians is like $160,000, which is almost three times the median income of America and, you know, five times more than the median for an African-American. So it's not color. It's got something, something else to do with it. So we went through and we started looking at this. And I think the answers, most of your listeners probably know the answers to this. That's nothing. I'm not talking about anything new. But back in the 1970s, uh, there was a man named Lyndon Johnson, right? So Lyndon Johnson comes yes. in and says, I'm going to try to make sure that the African-American community votes Democrat from here on for the next 200 years. And so he starts pushing the welfare rolls, and he starts putting more and more African-American families on welfare. But here's a caveat. You get more money if there's no father in the home. Yep. So now they're pushing. So guess what? If you reward something, you get more of it. If you punish something, and you, if you were married, you got less money. And they started creating this dependency, and guess what? Taking the father out of the house. So now, if you have a father, no father in the house, all the studies have shown us that without a father in the house, crime goes up, um, literacy goes down, uh, kids are looking for, uh, girls are looking for a father figure, so they start getting sexually active at a younger age. They start, um, uh, they don't, you know, they don't obey. They start joining up in gangs. So they're looking for that belonging. They're looking for the fathership. Everybody wants a father, right? Uh, and, you know, that's built into us, right? And then God put that in us, right? Uh, and so 
what happens is now you get crime, you get drugs, you get violence. And so the inner city schools are full of drugs and crime and violence. And so naturally the literacy rate goes down. The unemployment as a result goes down. The, uh, the violence, I mean, the, it's like the African-Americans are 13% of our, our uh, population, yet they commit 53% of all homicides. Now, understand, that's not the average African-American. It's the inner city gangs that are committing those homicides, right? It's not, you know, your friendly neighborhood person next door. It's, it's, the, it's the gang. So, so, but that whole thing affects the inner city. And so now the inner city, uh, uh, you know, if you went down to the inner, you know, what would be called the inner city nowadays, back then it was all suburban. But if you went into the African-American community back in the 1930s, You'd see a father walking down the streets with his kids around him. You'd see the father sitting on the porch watching his kids play. You'd see the father, you know, in the house at the meals and stuff like that. Today, if you go in the inner city, you don't see, you barely see anybody on the streets because it's dangerous. And secondly, you certainly don't see any fathers sitting on the porches. You don't see any of that. And so that was taken away. And when that came, now comes in all the other plight. And this is just part of it, right? And then the second part of it is, so we say the African-Americans were targeted specifically to make them depend on the state so they could get more voters. And the second thing we say is, look, now, it turns out that African-Americans are only 13% of the population, yet 79% of all Planned Parenthoods funded by government money are located in African or walking distance of African-American communities. Now, why is this the case? It makes no sense that you would you would uh, reach out to your population unless there's a, there's a tactical reason why you're there. And if you go back to the founder of Planned Parenthood, and that was Margaret Sanger, who basically said, if you read, uh, read her words, and this is really in context, I've had people argue with me. Well, this is not in context. I've had people argue with me, and it's wrong, because her, her basic, if you read the context, she basically said, we don't want word to get out that we want to exterminate the Negro population, because Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, was a eugenicist. Yep. And so now we're seeing that, okay, they're being targeted for, uh, to remove the fathers as a result, but it was targeted or planned. They have crime, violence, and all that stuff. So this is why we said, look, every black life matters. And so our solution is, look, if you really care, and this is the beauty, I think, of what we're saying is that you can go out to a BLM person, you know, not the violent kind, but the guys who are honestly, they care about black people. You say, look, you know, do black lives really matter to you? Because if black lives really matter to you, let me ask you this. Does inner city kids matter to you because they don't have 72 percent of all african-american homes have no father in the home does that matter to you and that's because of the welfare policies that we have do those black lives matter to you do you think that we should be doing changing something to make things that demographic and most people say yeah those black lives do matter to me right uh then you go to the next question you say well let me ask you this other question did you know that in city schools that literacy rates are something like 72 percent did you know that 63 percent 68 percent of all African-American parents want school choice. They want to be able to take their kids to any school they want. They want to take that voucher and go anywhere they want. Do you think that we should allow them to have school choice? Do those school children Black Lives Matter to you? Of course they're going to say yes. And then I say, well, did you know that um, almost something like 53% of all the children that are born that are black are killed in the womb? Did you know that uh, there are 44 million African-Americans in America today out of that, 20 million have been killed. So there would have been 64 million. Do those baby black lives matter to you? And of course they're going to say yes. And usually they do. <laughs> I've never had them say no. And then you say, well, in that case, you really need to join every black life matters because we're standing for this. And these are our principles. Real justice from womb to tomb, nuclear family, active fatherhood, free markets, educational choice, 
criminal justice reform, and of course, nonviolence, because BLM does not believe in nonviolence. And so these are the principles we have um, that we stand for. You know, you have said a ton of things. Holy moly. You know, you have to turn around and throw into the mixture also the federalization of our school systems, the public school systems, the federal takeover of that. Because now to the school system that is being run through your local government is more worried about the Benjamins how much money they're going to get per student in there than they are actually about the actual teachings. When you have kids acting up in class and you're not able to discipline that child, whether you suspend them, you hold them after school, you make them write on the blackboard, I will not do this 500 times. No, no, no. That's punitive. You can't do that to the child anymore because now you have the parent going to the school board to complain about the teacher trying to teach your kid and discipline the kid to teach them respect. No, no, they can't do that anymore. So these kids all of a sudden now, it's racist if you teach math, science, English. And to me, that is insulting. You're basically saying that this person cannot be as good as I am because they're too dumb to be taught. That's wrong. That is racist in itself. And that's what, and Kevin makes a good point. He says you're infantilizing us black people. You think you're incapable of doing that. Look at all the great inventors, the great scientists who are black. They didn't get there by not being able to add or multiply. And if anything, this is a, um, what you're trying to do to our population is you're trying to make them dependent on you forever. Because now not only can they not add, they can't read, they can't write. They only have to listen to you and you are what you're doing is basically enslaving them all over again. And that is racist. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, and don't forget they 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 can't find a way to get IDs. <laughs> but oh yeah, I want to. <laughs> <those people. laughs> yeah. yeah, our people are so dumb; they have no way of getting an ID. They don't ID, have any yeah. method. Uh, yeah, they they've never but owned wanna, a car. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, but I want to say that yeah, you you are right on, you know, spot on when it comes to when you ask individual. Um, Blacks from the black community about what matters to them, but when you when you are dealing with the the activist uh, wing of the Black Lives mm-hmm. Matter movement, they they could care less about um, Black Lives, in, in my opinion, because if that was true, that they really care. Like you said, you know, they would turn some of that energy, that destructive energy of theirs, into protesting the um, abortion centers, you know, the taking yeah, of um, yeah. innocent lives within the womb. They would be protesting crime, but see, that's yeah. not their agenda. So, you know, it's like two parts of that. You got the, you got the activist wing of the Black Lives Movement, and then you have the sympathizers who really don't know what Black Lives Matter really stands for or their origins or their Marxist, you know, um, background. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I always say that what I tell folks, I say, look, if you look at something that is so obviously wrong and that anybody in their right mind would say this makes no sense and yet people are pushing it, then you have to say, what is the ulterior motive? So why would a group called BLM want to push the very things? I mean, if you look at BLM's uh, articles, by the way, our website is everyblm.com. So everyblm.com. 
Um, so if you look at their uh, articles back when they first started, it said they were against the patriarchic hegemony. That means they want to take the father of their home. You know, they're, they're, they're for the woman's choice, you know, basically uh, women's rights, which is basically they want abortion until, right until the baby is born, right? So you start looking through their whole thing, and then they, they, they're for socialism. And if you look, think about it, socialism is the very problem that brought them here. That's with the, the welfare state and all that. And also, they're not, they don't believe in free markets. And, they, and free markets, I don't know if any if your listeners know this, but the, the free markets, you, we need free markets because we should be able to pay anybody any ways that they are worth, not any ways that the state thinks they're worth. And for instance, not many people know this, but the, um, uh, the, the rate, uh, the minimum wage was started by racists. Back in the 1930s, African-Americans were willing to do the work that white people were doing for half the price or less because racist owners would not hire them otherwise. So they'd say, look, I'll do the work for less. And so then if, even if you're a racist, the fact that you can get more profits, you're willing to hire a black man to do the work that a white man would do for half the price. And so the black community was doing the work. They were getting the expertise. They were getting good at it. They were bringing that money back to their community. They were starting businesses of their own, and they were getting better and better. Well, the unions, the unionists and the unions, or rather the unions, yeah, um, and uh, the racists said, we can't have this happen. We have to pass a law that says you have to pay everybody the same amount or a minimum amount. And so they made a law, passed a law <clears throat> that said you have to pay everybody this minimum wage. And guess what? The black people were now priced out of the, ma- the market because if you're a racist what, and you don't want like black people, there's no advantage anymore to hiring them. So they changed the law on that. And that's where the minimum wage comes from. And today with the free market problems, we have free market in the, in the city. Uh, there's a story out of Chicago with this young gal <clears throat> couldn't start a business she had, and she was almost jailed and thrown in prison and almost thrown in prison rather, and uh, had a bunch of fines because she didn't do spend the $6,000 to get all the certification and all the training and all the professional uh, certificates so she could start a hair braiding business in her home. Now understand what they did. They basically said, here's an entrepreneur. We're going to instead take off all her livelihood that she could be making, and we have created a new welfare recipient by all our rules and regulations. You know, I've been battling my own county council, and I'm in a suburban area, is that we could, we could actually increase the, the wealth of this county by allowing more people to operate an independent business out of their home. But instead, you have yep. to have X amount of spaces for handicap. You have to have this. You have to have that. And my husband and I ran a business out of our home. And the hoops we had to run through. And towards the end, yep. the taxes that you paid on the equipment. And every year, we pay a sales tax. Even though you had that equipment for 20 years, every year, you right. pay a sales tax on it. And it, I got a bill in there. And the tax bill was almost the value of the equipment in its entirety. Wow. Uh, we, sold the, we sold the equipment. It went down to South America well, yeah. or the Caribbean or somewhere. We had a printing business. It was a good, lucrative business until they taxed us out of it. And if government gets off our back, but this is the problem. They can't keep their power and stay in office unless they do these things and make every last one of us dependent upon it to make us a socialist nation. Just one step away from communism. And absolutely. And here's, here's what I would recommend, and that's what we're doing. <clears throat> if, you, if you, rather than going to your county and complaining 
about all the rules and regulations. This is what I would recommend. We call all of them. And that's what we're doing here in California. In Santa Clara County, we have a, what we're calling a total recall. We're recalling every single one of our county supervisors. See, I go to a church that has over $3.5 million in fines. Whoa. The county slapped it on us because we refused to shut down during COVID. We're like, no, we're not shutting down. After we realized, you know, we shut down for a few weeks, and then we were like, wait, this is not a real thing. This is not a real problem. So we opened up, and they came. They tried to slap us with fines, and, and, and uh, it, it's a funny story, right? Because now they're like, okay, we want to negotiate. They're like, no, we're not negotiating. This is going all the way to the Supreme Court, and you're going to pay every single dime of our lawyer fees because we've been represented for free so far by the, the Advocates for Faith and Freedom, right? So they are they were like, no, we're going all the way to the Supreme Court. They're like, no, no, we'll, we'll negotiate. No, no negotiation. You pay us. That's what's going to happen. But here's the mm. other thing we're doing. So we uh, have initiated a countywide recall of every single uh, supervisor. We just kicked it off a few weeks ago, uh, and we're raising money and raising funds. And, and Because what? They've, they've got so many rules and regulations against all these small businesses. So we're going to recruit all the small businesses. Now, I wish I could say we're going to recruit from the churches, but the churches in our area are wimpy. This is the, probably one of the only few churches that have stood up. There are some far larger churches. But the, the good news is that this church, when, he, when our pastor stood up, I wasn't even going there. I went there because it was the only open church. When he stood up and said, no, we're not going to shut down, we said, well, that's the church we're going to because our church was much larger. That's about 4,000 people had shut down. So we said, we're going to go to that church. Well, that church was about 250 people. Now they're at least 2,500. Right? Wow. So it's grown God 10 bless. times in a year. In a year. Imagine, imagine Where that. Where everyone right? else is losing, is losing parishioners. You, exactly. you grew. We grew. Oh, and it's not only just Christians that are coming there. We've had all sorts of um, – so we started – I run an organization besides EBLM. I also run – an organization called the Values Advocacy Council. If you're interested, go to VAC.org, VAC for Victor Values Advocacy Council. Um, and we have had speakers. In fact, we're about to book Dr. Simone Gold again. Uh, we have Eric Metaxas. We've had Charlie. We just had Larry Elder, who's running for governor, speak for us. So, we're, you know, we're inviting. We're having a debate next week, a, a gubernatorial debate, all the people who are uh, running against Gavin Newsom to recall him. So, um a lot of people come to these meetings, and then we invite them to church the next day because that's a Saturday night. And we say, hey, you don't want to come up to church. Why don't you be in church tomorrow morning? And many of them have come. Many of them got saved. We've had bapt- Every few months, we'll have a baptism, and like 70, 80 people get baptized, right? Um, oh. So, so this is a growing movement, and God is using it. Uh, just yesterday, we had a uh, – because the, the county now wants a mandate injections or shots for every single county employer. Uh, employee and so uh, a lot of them are like no I don't want to take the thing and then they can get fired and they lose all their benefits so we had a county employee meeting yesterday um, and that's gathering steam Uh, we're trying to get the unions involved you know and say hey union guys these are your people if you start losing people because they're not going to join the union in the future because they don't want to have a vaccination what are you going to do you're going to lose people you better stand up and fight for them so we might get the, I mean, who knows? We'll see what the unions go with us. Uh, but if, if they're going to fight with us, we'll join them. We're not, I'm not really a pro-union guy, but, you know, we, uh, we, if they understand, if they, see, if they fight for the right things, we'll, we'll stand with people who fight for the right things. So, so it's growing, and I think this movement is growing. And, and from what I understand, um, I think the county's afraid of us. They're like, wait, are these Christians organizing? Imagine if Christians organize. There's something like 300,000 churches in America, right? Mm-hmm. Um, something like, uh, you know, and, and all, the, all the indications are there's something like 37 
percent of Americans go to church, right? So imagine if just half of those churches were gathered together and stand up. That's something like a hundred million people. Well, we're so busy. <laughs> yeah. We're so busy fighting among ourselves, though, because we just had a huge battle here in South Carolina that I'm sure you probably heard of, where we split from the Episcopal Church, and then yeah, yeah, they yeah. tried to take our property and and close yeah, us down. I've heard the of that. bishop that yeah. the bishop that was uh, in running this whole movement after we split from them, turned around and she said to us, our church was built in 1712. It survived the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. And she said to us, I will see your church turned into a mosque. You will not open your doors. We're still standing and we're still attending. She lost. She lost. So we have the split right now between the liberal arm of Christianity, uh, critical race theory, uh, black theology, mm-hmm. battling with those of us that try to stay true to the biblical readings, the biblical scripture, true to the word of God as written in the Bible. You know, so we have a, a fight here right now between liberal Christianity and uh, conservative Christianity. And I think that's where our main problem stands. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. But but even if just the conservatives stand up, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, just let you know, you know, and those battles are going to go on. But if just the conservative part of Christians should stand up and fight, it's amazing. Um, and and you know, they're, they're, we're talking about all these things about um, you know FEMA camps and all that because they're talking about hey, if you don't get it, then I mean, and I've read it. You know, there is they're saying okay, we may have to have this place where they put them just for people who are not vaccinated or people who are susceptible or the older people and all that. Now. Uh, folks, let me tell you, if they come to take you to a FEMA camp, that's a war. That's an act of war, right? Yeah. And I would yeah. say that uh, make sure you're part of your state militia because this is you. And they'll try and take you, pick you off one by one. But if it's it's declared, you come from any one of us, we're going to make one phone call, and there's going to be 200 people there to make sure you don't take them out of their house. You have this organized mm-hmm. group of people where they are on call. I'm telling you, uh, the state Look, if you're going to have a bunch of conservatives against a bunch of liberals uh, who are armed, I'm going to bet on the conservatives. <laughs> the guys who go out hunting, the guys who are part of militia, the guys who are ex-military, I'm going to bet on them. So that's what I'm going to encourage everybody to do. Stop going, oh, the FEMA camps are coming. No, join a militia. Be part of the militia. Be part of that organization that say, look, if anything happens, I'm going to make one phone call, and I want – I want you guys to be able to drop everything and be at my house with in 10, 15 minutes with everything. And I'll delay for that 15 minutes. And by that time, uh, I'm telling you, there's no police force that can cover it. There's no police force with a hundred people. Right. And after military mm-hmm. force, I'm telling you, a lot of those boys are on our side. Mm-hmm. And you also got retired uh, Leo's. <laughs> so, yeah. Yes. Because we also raised our hand and swore to uphold the Constitution of the United States, yep. just like yep. every single elected official as well as military individual. You know, uh, there, there's so much more to talk about. It's, but one of the things I, I find amazing is that with the Black Lives Matter movement, they do this march around and it's like, say their name. And they're talking about oh, yeah. those that died when they had a conflict with law enforcement, be it right or wrong. And they'll, they'll put them out as if they were a victim, even though many times it's the officer that's being assaulted and they're defending themselves or someone else. 
And there's a, there are, you know, in any organization, there always is one or two bad apples. And they'll make 99% yeah. of the rest of them look bad because that one individual just did what, the wrong yeah. thing. Uh, Ashley Babbitt, can we say that? Uh, but <laughs> what about the victims of this outrageous outbreak of crime, the innocent children or young adults that are being slaughtered innocently because they get caught in a crossfire of black on black crime or yeah, you have yeah. uh, mayors or other governments that say defund the police so the police are no longer able to defend the public but then you have elected officials Corey Bush who says defund the police but she takes your taxpayer money's security this is the hypocrisy so, of the Black Lives Matter movement. Absolutely. Um, but again, we don't expect anything else. And so the second part, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, whenever something is obviously wrong, you first look at the, the where's the money coming from, who's it going to benefit? And you go, okay, so BLM really, they're benefiting from donations, they're benefiting from, uh, from all this violence and all that. But why are they benefiting from that? Because it's like the old, you know, if, if, there, if, if there was, let's put it this way, um, EBLM, uh, Every Black Life Matters, our organization, is based on the fact that there's black plight. But our goal is to remove the need for EBLM. Right? The day we say, okay, e- our, our organization has no value anymore because we've, we've, knew, I mean, we've, we've made things better, right? I mean, African Americans are thriving, they're, they're doing well, the school literacy rate has gone up, you know, then we'll be happy. But BLM gets billions of dollars because of the strife, right? And so they want to continue. But there's a second part of this. There's a second part of this, and, then we, and this is, comes right into the critical race theory. Why would anybody suggest critical race theory when anyone with a common sense would look at that and say all the things that all the critical race theory do is make, is make racism worse? Because they're going to move racism from black people to white people, and the white people are not going to stick around. They're going to say, we're not going to take this racism thing down. And so they're going to mobilize. I mean, think of the best recruiting tool for white supremacy group. It's CRT. Right? Because CRT, mm-hmm. if, if your listeners don't know, and I'm sure they do from your uh, shows, CRT says if you're white, you're a racist automatically. You, you're, you're doomed. You're, there's nothing you can do. You're just, you're just born racist. You live racist. And if you say you're not a racist, it means you're a racist. If you say you don't want to be a racist, it shows that you are a racist <laughs> or you were a racist. So, right? It's a catch-22. So yeah, there's nothing you can do. Well, what is, if, if I was a white supremacist, right, and I went to a, um, some – low-income uh, white neighborhood and said, look, the reason why you are low-income, the reason why you're oppressed is because the blacks are taking all your benefits, and now they're calling you a racist. Now they're saying that you're doomed. There's nothing you can do. you got to pay reparations. That's going to be a rallying call for a white supremacist group. So you have to ask yourself, mm-hmm. why would BLM and the people who teach CRT want this to happen? Because they want to break down America. It, 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 you hit it on the nail, the nail on the head. Critical race theory came out of critical theory, which was the brainchild yeah. of Lenin. It is pure communism. Yeah. Yeah. They could not use class warfare here in the United States because they tried that. They tried the class yeah. warfare, but because our society is so mobile, they couldn't do it. So in order to do it, they threw race into the theory. So everything that was critical class theory 
now becomes critical race theory. It is just another form of communism taking over America. Well, Neil, people can find you at Every Black Lives Matter, your website there, everyblm.com. It is a pleasure having you on. And I, I can't let you go a couple of years before you come back again. That's for sure. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thank well, you. God bless you for the hard work you do. Enjoy your weekend, sir. Thank you. Yeah, bye. Right. All right. Check out Neil Mammon uh, and his partner, Kevin McGarry, over at everyblm.com. And got to welcome back onto the show the beautiful, the vivacious Karen Watson. Good afternoon, Karen. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are y'all doing? All I'm right. doing fine. Good to hear your voice again. <laughs> I'm doing fine. I'm just trying to get my notes together because right now, I am not following anything I should be doing. I'm completely off script today. <laughs> but we don't have the technical difficulties like we had last week. At least we got our act together on this one. Oh, man. Oh, jeez. Hey, listen, um, I saw an, an article coming up in the paper just recently uh, that uh, – oh, surprise, surprise, surprise. Biden's numbers are falling into the tank. He's down yeah. something like – about. Forty-eight percent. Do you think that with the upcoming election, this off-year election, do you think it's going to be enough of a punch for us to knock him down by taking back the House and the Senate? I think we've got a lot of work to do, and we can't be comfortable in thinking that people are going to know all of the data that they need to know. And I just want us to be um, very hardworking and let just let people know the facts. One, we will not be able to survive the debt load they are giving us. It, it just won't happen. And on that basis alone, we have got, to take the House, take the Senate, and get people who just want to preserve the country. I mean, I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. There is, it, you know, you need to say there is no way we come out of this without um, some deep wounds, and we have got to stop this. It's very scary. So I just, I implore everyone, get the numbers, find out what's going on, get involved. But no, I don't think this is, you know, just a shoe-in because they will use every trick they can. But we have got to do the work to stop um, the silliness of this administration. It is, it is absolutely frightening. And my own state senator, Lamesy Gramnesty, voted for this infrastructure bill. I mean, you never know which side of the bed this guy's going to get up on. You know, one minute he's closing up to Trump as if he's his best friend and he's now the most conservative senator in, in there. And as soon as Trump is out, he's going back to his old way. You would think it was another version of John McCain back in the Senate. You know, we can't, we can't, this bill is not about infrastructure. It's not. I mean, 
you know, we've got to be honest with ourselves. They're not building roads and bridges. This is just, uh, this is, this is too much. It is too much and um, it needs to be stopped. It does. It does. Only 10% of it actually goes, I think it's less than 10%, actually goes to real infrastructure. But they coded it now in a new term. Oh, it's infrastructure, Karen, but they call it human infrastructure. What the yeah. is that? Human yeah, infrastructure? Yeah, it's very Orwellian. You know, you can call it anything and you want it to mean something different and, you know, one thing that uh, the left is so good at is just changing the name of something. And, you know, you can't call them illegal immigrants, even though they enter the country illegally. You have to call them migrants. So what does that mean? You know, it's the, the keep changing the name, keep changing definition, till pretty soon nobody knows what you're talking about anymore. But we know this is a bill we cannot pay. And that is the thing that we need to, how do we pay for all this? And we and it shouldn't be something that we step back and take lightly. No, it shouldn't be. And by the way, Biden said in one of his latest speeches that he intends to raise taxes. Uh, guys, uh, they're coming. Yeah, they're, they're going to be coming after your IRAs, your 401ks, your KEO plans, any sort of retirement savings you put aside. They're coming after that. Next, then they will turn around. And those of you that are on Social Security and you're below an earning and you're not paying taxes, they're coming after your Social Security. They will come after your government pensions. They will come after anything and everything. And wait until uh, someone passes away in your family and you get a minor inheritance. Now, the level is that they don't tax it if it's $1 million. Well, next thing you know, if it's $100,000, you are going to be taxed. And it's going to be the sale of your house because you can't stay in it any longer. You will be taxed on any profit. you make. They're going to come after your or earnings that you have in your savings account. They're going to be coming after your stocks you buy and put aside for retirement. They're coming after it all. And that's going to be because of this infrastructure bill. They Am I looking at this the right way? trillion dollars of stuff. You know, that's what I'm – people are not understanding. You can't pay a trillion-dollar debt without raising taxes. You just can't do it. There is no way you can do it. And – it, it's insane. It is insane, and um, and it needs to stop because this government is cannot bear the weight of this debt, and it's going to be. We're just setting up a nightmare for our country, and so yeah, we need to definitely do all we can to. Um, get the people out and keep on trying to ruin the country by adding all this insane debt. Plus well, all the other know, I think I think the same thing that happened to um, Obama 
um, after this first term is it's going to happen to Biden. Um, Obama lost a lot of seats um, statewide, mm-hmm. um, national-wide um, during the midterms, and he he never really was a a, a, a leader in that party that that brought you know a lot of other people into the party. And nor did they gain any any seats or anything like that. I think the same thing's going to happen to Biden because people are tired of the high gas prices. They are tired of um, this Afghan situation, Afghanistan, and they're tired of COVID. You know, we were finally getting over COVID um, the last year of Trump, and 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 just like the border, we were pretty much not hearing much about the border the last year of Trump. And now all these things have reared reared their heads again. And I think people just, you know, they, they fed up and it's going to be reflected in um, the outcome of the upcoming midterms, I believe, especially um, if Trump keeps keeps these rallies going, you know, until he announced formally if he's going to do so. I agree with you. I, I really do. I think that, People are just going to say, you know what, it's crazy because uh, every country has to have a border. I mean, I'm sorry. That's just, that's, that's 101. You have to have a border. And every country has a right to having their border be respected. And the other thing, the narrative is not making sense. People are saying... Okay, you're telling me someone walked here a thousand miles and they're a hundred pounds overweight, they are in it it just common sense is slowly coming back into the room. You know, you're it's not making sense to people like, you know, the way they want it to be. And so I think that's happening. And uh, I agree with you. People are are just like, no, we cannot keep doing this. This is not sustainable. And with Biden, I think that people are thinking it's so far to the left and so far extreme that he's even losing his own base, you know, because they're like, man, this is too much. You know, you get trillion dollars and trillion dollars and trillion dollars, and then, you know, you you won't even visit the border, and we have millions. And I'm and and that's not hyperbole. We have millions of people coming across the border illegally, and yet you talk about COVID and. Yes, I believe there is a virus out there, and it is unfortunately killing people, and there are viruses that kill people all the time, but you're so worried about COVID, but you're not worried about the illegal aliens that are coming across the border that have they're not vaccinated or not coming across with masks, but you're worried if I'm, whether I'm wearing a mask sitting in my church, you know. It's just, it's just crazy. And um, as I I told my mother, I said, I don't care what you call it. You can't tell 
adults what to do. And anytime you start having mandates, look, mandates don't ever work. If you thought they did, all you have to do is get on the freeway and see if everyone's driving the speed limit. People always go over because they feel like they have a place to go. It doesn't matter what you post on the on a street sign. If they feel like they can get away with it, they're going to do it. Mandates don't work for adults. They don't work for kids. You can't even tell kids what to do. So why do you think you're going to tell a whole nation of of adults what to do? Just give them the information and have them make their own choices. But, you know, these nanny states, you're going to take all my money, then tell me what to do. That's just setting us up for failure. That is not going to work. No, and instead they also tried to shame us because recently in a speech, Biden said, I'm sorry, Fauci said uh, he will get you to be vaccinated, quote, by any means necessary, unquote. And I looked at my mom and I says, what is he going to do? Come over here, have me in handcuffs, tie me down to an examining table and jab me with the needle by any means necessary were the exact words he did, which is unethical for a medical doctor or any medical person to say that. Uh, Joe Biden, in his recent speech, said that if you don't get vaccinated, you must wear a mask and you cannot work. You're telling me I cannot earn a living wage to provide for my family and ourselves if I don't get vaccinated, even if I am wearing a mask. And then you had Schwarzenegger just recently that was blaring all over Newsmax last night talking to that Colonel Vindman, that loser, uh, on a video interview for CNN. Schwarzenegger, former governor of California who came to the United States for freedom, said, screw your freedom. This is what we're facing, Karen. This is the mindset of the rabid left. That's crazy. Well, people are going to start fighting back, and it's not going to be, you know, in in my city that I love in Dallas, our governor said, you know, you can't do mask mandates. They are ignoring our county judge said, you know what, I'm going to do a mask mandate in in Dallas County and even though the governor said you can't do it. So now it's a big court battle. You know, so why does the governor not have the power to do it? it it's, it's crazy that people are just playing playing politics with, um, with our lives. And kids and- are starting back to school. And these poor children don't learn well with these masks, and they are not in a population that uh, is vulnerable to this. And they're forgetting to tell people that there are people who are double vaccinated who are getting sick. So, I mean, it's crazy. It is. And not only in Dallas is the governor there being sued, but now Ron DeSantis is being sued by a series of families. And they're saying, because you don't have a mask mandate and my children are going back to school, you're putting us in jeopardy. No, what DeSantis said, the parents are the ones who should make the decision for the children. So if you want to send your child to school 
with a mask, that's perfectly fine. But I'm not going to make it a mandate anywhere within the state. So these parents are too brain dead to make that decision. Instead, they have to sue the governor. It's, you know, it's crazy. But as I really believe that most people want autonomy and most people want liberty and freedom and, you know, free to do, to wear a mask and free not to wear a mask. It's your choice. And hoping that common sense will start to prevail. <laughs> I'm hoping. I know well, that. Well, I don't know about that because there was an article by Peter Roth. He asked in the headlines, is the media to blame for the new COVID surge? And a new poll says maybe. Mm -hmm. And this was posted up in American Action News. And this is where I found it most interesting. He writes that the surge in the number of people testing possible for the Delta variant is once again dominating the national conversation as the number of people who end up hospitalized. Left out of the conversation is how this same variant appears to be considerably less lethal than the inherent of the disease and believed by many to have originated in Wuhan, China. Now, here's the boom. You might think more people infected yet few are dying would be a welcome headline. This yeah. is the, the, they're, they're fueling the fear. Yeah. Yes, well, I would like to add. I would like to add this. You know, they they can't talk about an increase in deaths because it's just not happening the way they want it. So they focus on rising cases, and we're talking about um, cases where, and we're talking about um, COVID, which has like I think a ninety-seven percent survival rate. So oh, it's, like 99, you know, 99 yeah, percent. It's, it's still up there. Yeah. And, I mean, here we have a disease that impacts less than 0.0001 percent. But, yeah. you know, we focus on that, but we don't focus on the fact that 99 percent or 90, you know, whatever the percentage is, it's in the 90s, you know, people survive it. And um, I think that you know, the delusion that's out there, yeah. the delusion that they put forth out there, that all these people are coming in. Well, when you think about it, they're coming in because any time they get a sniffle, they, they're afraid they might have COVID. Where normally if you right. had the flu or pneumonia, well, pneumonia, you'd probably go to the hospital. But the flu or something like that, you'd probably just stay home and tough it out, you know, and, and maybe get some over-the-counter stuff. But with this COVID, you know, you got people so scared that more and more people are coming to the hospitals so they can capitalize on that, you know, and put the perception out there that, oh, man, we're back in, you know, rough waters again. And I think that's what's happening. Well, and they, they intend for that to happen. Well, you know, our, our local communist rag has been blaring, of course, the headlines for the last three days that 10,000 people have died here in the state of South Carolina because of some influence from COVID. Now, that means you could have had diabetes, cancer, heart condition, some other underlying ailment, but it, they're lumping everyone together. All right, fine. Give them the 10,000 number. Now, South Carolina has a population of somewhere approximately around 4 million people. 
which means that the number of people that died from COVID in the state of South Carolina is point zero zero two five. I mean, but it's from yes, we're sad about every loss of life, but you know what? <laughs> I can guarantee, and I can't guarantee most things. But I can guarantee you, everybody's gonna die. <laughs> yeah, we're all gonna die. There's nothing that kills you like life. Everybody dies. The question is, how do we live? And I am not asking for a. See, I have. I'm not wanting one person to to die. But death is a part of life, and no. What we want is to be realistic. When you get upset that a person who has cancer and they're in their 90s and they die of COVID, I promise you that person was a lot closer to death than most people because most people are not in their 90s and have cancer. And we have to kind of start kind of just growing up and kind of like what CS was saying, it's, it's not, um, and viruses change. The nature of a virus is to change. And I was telling someone, like looking at a child that's a newborn and coming back in six months and looking at that same child and like, oh my gosh, you look so different. That's what viruses do. They change, they mutate, they grow, they morph from this, they go to that. That's what they've been doing forever. So mm-hmm. we can't, you know, we we have to just be wise. And common sense has to reenter our conversations. And sure, we should be healthy. Sure, we should drink our water and take our vitamins and and be as healthy as you can possibly be. But this thing that this belief that we're that we're just gonna fall down from COVID no matter what is insane. And a virus is so small that you have to realize those masks are not a great deterrent because the size of the virus and you know, you need to breathe so they can't make it where it has no pores at all. And the best thing we can do, I think, is just thank God, live life, and um, and love God and love your neighbor. I mean, you know, and <laughs> yeah, do the best you can, but stop all this craziness. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Karen, people can find you on your website, which is gobuzz.com, and they can email you there also if they need to contact you and talk to you. And you are always such a joy to have us on the show. Uh, But this time, I think when we do get you back on again, we're going to have to give you a full hour. I'm sorry. I said this last time. We had 20 minutes last time. We had half an hour today. Uh, The next time, it's going to be a full hour just for you, baby girl, just for you. I would love it. I would love it. And I love y'all. Thank you for what you do. Tell them the truth. Because there are a lot of lies out there. And as I told one kid last week, I said, question everything. Question everything. uh, All right. That's the way to do it. 
All right. Okay. Thank you, guys. All right. Enjoy your oh, weekend you're and happy Friday the 13th. <laughs> Take care. All right. Check out Karen Watson, GoBuzz, G-O-P-B-U-Z-Z dot com. And bringing back our victim, our final victim of the show, our buddy, our friend, the love. Well, actually, he could be the love of my life, but Mark Tascott of Epic Times, as well as Hill Faith. Good afternoon, Mark. How are you today? I am great, Anne. How are you? Oh, I'm I'm just amazed at the craziness that we have been coming across. And I swear, every time I say I've never seen anything as crazy as this, the very next morning I wake up, I turn on the TV, and I go, now, now they beat yesterday. They really outdid yeah. yesterday. I keep on yeah. shaking my head. It's like, am I in an alternative universe? What happened to this world? I don't recognize it anymore. Well, it certainly has been different since last November. Um, it's certainly not what uh, any of us would have preferred. That is an understatement, understatement. But you know what? We do have some good people out there fighting for us, fighting for the good cause. And um, I'm sure you're aware of this. Ted Cruz, bless his heart. He is out there almost like a one-man wrecking ball. He's been slow walking the State Department nominees, and he's holding up their approval. And he's forcing the administration to um, place sanctions on that Nord Stream 2 pipeline that goes from Russia to Germany. Do you think he's going to get succeed? Do you think we have a chance to start turning things around? Well, I don't know if if, if it will be on, on that particular issue. Um, Biden, for whatever reason, seems determined to allow the Russians to um, build that um, pipeline, which will have the effect of making Europe uh, pretty much dependent upon Russia for natural gas during the winter, and that gives Russia tremendous leverage over Western Europe uh, as a result. But I do I do share the optimism about uh, things turning around. Ted Cruz Wednesday, I guess it was actually yesterday, yesterday morning, about 3.30 in the morning, Charles, uh, Chuck Schumer tried to sneak in the for the People Act, which is the Democrats' big election, federal, federalizing fed, uh, elections. And he tried to get it through on unanimous consent, which is a parliamentary procedure that if no senator objects, the bill is then deemed passed. And Cruz apparently knew that this was coming, and he was prepared, and he stood up, and, he, and that stopped, the, uh, at least for the moment. The Democrats then went ahead and had a vote, and they passed the For the People Act in the Senate uh, on a 50 to 49 vote. I don't know who the one Republican was who missed it. Um, in any case, that that is the Democrats' biggest um, uh, election reform, and what they're trying to do is basically to Uh, ensure that incumbent Democrats have every advantage uh, come the next election. Do you think there's going to be grounds to challenge it? I I see massive lawsuits popping up all over the place. It it will be in the courts for a long time. That will, um, or I should say it will be in the courts until 
a Republican Congress and Republican president repeal it, uh, if that ever could happen. We will see. Well, the fearful thing is, is there are certain things that will end up becoming permanent in our federal election system, and that's what I fear. Once they get some of these things implemented, they'll be so woven into the bureaucracy of our federal government that we'll never see them go away. Well, think of the uh, on the immigration issue, for example. Trump um, and um, the Republicans in Congress were able to establish a very effective immigration system that, among other things, when somebody was caught coming across the border illegally, they were uh, immediately returned to Mexico on the return to Mexico policy. That that worked tremendously effectively to cut down on the uh, a number of illegals coming across the border. First thing that Biden did when he took office was to reverse that. Uh, that's a good illustration, I think, that um, especially in our system of government where we do have elections every two years, things never really have to be permanent if there is the political will to change them. And that's why it's so important that Republicans uh, not just talk about limiting government, but they actually make the decisions, take the actions that are needed to reduce government, which has gotten so much bigger than it's ever been in American history, but there is still the ability, if there is the political will, to cut it back down to where it should be. Well, you know, I'm looking at this administration and you just like, what is the next insane thing they're going to be hitting? Because now they're they're trying to get the mileage tax uh, and Biden is now pushing for electrical cars, at least 50 percent of the market by 2030. But does he still have investments in China? Because the only way you're going to make these cars is if they come out of China, made with the rare earths that are found in China. Uh, it, it's like, why don't you just hand over the reins of government to China? Because that's what he's going to be doing. I, You know, I suspect that there are more than a few people in America today when they learn that uh, since China controls 80% of the uh, production capacity for the, for the batteries that EVs have to have, um, that and, – and considering that Hunter Biden has – such extensive business interest in uh, China, um, someone who was very skeptical might wonder, well, what kind of kickback is Hunter getting on this deal? Um, I don't know that that's the case. I hope it's not. But the bottom line on the Biden uh, program is, indeed, it's going to be a bonanza for China because if we are going to shift to half of all of our vehicles being electric vehicles, that means we're going to have to buy millions and millions of very expensive uh, electrical batteries from China. And that'll mm-hmm. put billions and billions of dollars into China's economy that should be staying here in, in the American economy. Now, if you consider the starting prices of these electric cars today, forget about 2030, <laughs> today is around 65000 now, how On many average, people right. are going to be able to afford that? If if you could only afford right. a used car and we're no longer producing oil and we're depending upon 
OPEC for giving us the oil because ours was now shut down. Thank you, crazy Uncle Joe. How are you going to have that person that works at McDonald's be able to afford transportation just to get to their job? You know, that is a great question, Ann. And and if you look at the sales just in this past July, it's a very good illustration of exactly what you're talking about. Only 2.7% of all the vehicle sales in the U.S. in July of this year were electric vehicles. If you include in in that the um, uh, hybrid vehicles that are a combination of electric and and gas-powered, you only still get 4%. And what Biden is saying is that in nine very short years, we should have 50%. So he's talking about a massive increase and a huge change in the American culture because when we have to go to electric vehicles, so many things about our transportation system are going to have to change. Nine years is 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 not very long uh, a period of time when you're talking about such massive changes, such as, for example, um, Biden wants federal subsidies to build 500,000 electric vehicle charging stations all over the country. That will take a long time to get them all up. And in the meantime, there's going to be a lot of people driving EVs that they can't get them recharged because they're not close enough to a recharging station, or they are close to one, but there are so many people there in line already that it takes hours and hours and hours before you can actually get recharged. That's going to have yeah, you- tremendous, tremendous consequences in our society. Not, not only that, you could go, I think the average is around 235 miles maximum. Uh, on my car, I fill up the gas tank and it's only 11 gallons. I can go over 300. You know, Now, how do you do this long haul for truckers? Oh, wait a minute, trucks are going to be electric powered. But will the electric power have enough power to do a big load, a big tractor trailer? No. So you're going to be forced to do stuff by rail again? You know, and it, it, there's so many things. Now throw into the whole mix, talking about unifying the national electric grid. Right now we're piecemeal. So if one part of the grid right. goes down, it's only one part of that country. The rest is still functioning. But if we, we unite it, what happens if we get hit by Iran somewhere? Or if Iran and China do come through with their threats to, to hit us, and they hit us with an EMP, knock out us nationwide. How many millions of people will die from the loss of electrical power? The national grid, uh, you are absolutely right. It is decentralized now. If it is centralized under federal control, um, we know how inefficient the federal government is now. And I certainly would not want to make whether or not when I flip a switch – in my house, whether or not the lights come on dependent upon the federal government. That's that's a real problem and I don't think I don't think people realize how big a problem that is and probably won't frankly until it actually happens. Yeah, it it's a very scary thought. And the only people that are gonna really truly survive are those that live off the grid. You know, uh, when we had um, one of the hurricanes come through here in South Carolina, my husband and I had the generator going. 
So for five days, we had power, limited power, yes, but we still had power. We were able to cook. We were able to keep our, our, our food cold. We were able to feed neighbors. Um, but how many people are going to be prepared like that if the grid should ever yeah. be taken down? And all you need is one ransomware to do it. All you need is someone to who's nuts or a terrorist to get into one of the stations to take it down. Or you need uh, maybe even a Colonel Vidman running the grid inside the Pentagon or wherever they have the master control. Or the software goes down. Or they go to do an update in the software and takes the whole system down. Then we have a nation yeah. without power. And what's that going to affect? If you want to see what that's going to look like, you can see it today. Just just check out. Look at Venezuela. North Korea. Look at North Korea. North you, you, Korea. Yep. You've you've seen the the famous satellite photograph of um, the Korean Peninsula at night, and mm-hmm. you know South Korea is an extremely prosperous capitalist country. The place is lit up. You get to the border with North Korea, and it goes dark because North Korea is an intensely socialist, communist country. They don't have lights on at night. They don't have the power. That's the way it will be here. We will have uh, long, long lines at the grocery stores because the grocery stores won't get food resupplied sometimes for weeks at a time. It's, it's, it will be chaotic. Absolutely. And when you think about now, government vehicles being electric vehicles you know you have the cops they they trade the cars off that car is going non-stop you know, 24 hours now how do you keep that powered up to keep yourself a police force a firefighting force emergency services you know if if we were to lose power in an area you're not going to have someone to respond in an emergency because they don't have a way to power up their vehicle. If you have a medical emergency and you need to get to the hospital fast and you can't wait for the ambulance, how are you going to do it if you have no power for your vehicle? Getting rid mm-hmm. of the gas mm-hmm. the gas car is going to be a huge, huge mistake. Stopping our oil productions is a huge mistake. Yes. Yeah. And I say that uh, not because I happen to be from Texas, from Texas and Oklahoma, which are the two biggest oil-producing states in the country, but because our our economy is based on um, fossil fuels, oil, natural gas, coal. And you don't just snap your fingers and say, well, we're going to stop doing that and we're going to start being electric. It takes a long time to make such a transition, and even if you can make it in, let's say, nine years, the loss of um, th- th- just just the disruption of the daily routine of our lives is going to be massive. And frankly, I think most Americans, when they get a taste of just how massive those disruptions will be, will say, wait a minute, we're not going to do this. No. And I, I get a kick because I, I drive a nice big Ford Expedition, and I see these little electric vehicles scooting down the road and go, hey, you know what, if, if you run out of electricity, you need a lift, you know, we can lift your car up to the back of mine. It'll fit. 
<laughs> I said, turned around to someone one day, and she's getting out of the car, and I says, uh, where do you put the dogs and kids after you buy your groceries? There's no, no, there's no cargo space. And so, yeah. you know, in order to make these things run, they have to make them very lightweight, which then begs yeah. to differ. What happens when they get into an accident? How safe is that individual? I know if someone mm-hmm. hits me in my big Ford Expedition, they're going to get a big ouch. You hit one yeah. of these little tiny toys, it's a Tonka toy. Really? Well, then throw well, that, it into the, a, the... Go ahead. That, that, that's a problem not just with the EVs, Ann. That's, that's been a problem since the federal government began requiring the automakers to raise their fleet-wide fuel economy standards. There's, there's a... Uh, and I covered the auto industry for 25 years, so I'm very familiar with how this has worked in the last three decades. It's it's always a balance. You make the vehicle lighter, you get better fuel economy. But mm-hmm. the trade-off is the lighter vehicle, as you said, is less safe. And when a 4,000-pound uh, vehicle gets hit by a 6,000-pound vehicle, which is about what your expedition weighs, um, the 4,000-pound vehicle is going to get by far the worst end of it, and so will the people who are in it, even if you have airbags. It will be even worse with the electric vehicles because of the structure that has to be built around the batteries. That introduces uh, yet another safety problem and an environmental problem because if you have uh, an accident at a high speed, say the kinds of head-on collisions that we all hear about from time to time, the, there's a very great possibility that the batteries in an EV will explode. Be, will either explode or they'll open and leak. And you've got cobalt coming in, coming out of it. You've got um, lithium. You've got all kinds of very toxic stuff that, for example, the um, Emergency responders who arrive on the scene, if, if, if the thing is, if the scene is, is completely um, covered with toxic materials, that's going to slow everything down. It's just, it's just one detail after the other when you start thinking about, well, what happens if we make this transition? It has implications from top to bottom in our society. Absolutely. And when you said head-on collision, I just had a flashback because a little over a year ago, uh, my little Honda Accord was totaled by a drunk driver that hit me head-on with a Cadillac Escalade pick-me-up truck. And uh, I've responded to many, many accident scenes and seen some horrific ones. And I looked at the car. My husband, rest his soul, looked at the car. And then the state trooper looked at it and he goes, how would you walk away? And all I can say is the hand of God, because he hit me so hard. And my phone, which was inside my purse, flew out of the phone, my purse, and shattered. And I was going, I was going not maybe 25 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the other guy around the curve and boom, head on into me. So I'm thinking that what, he was probably going closer to 45 maybe uh, speeding up to 50, he had come through a turn, which gave him more momentum. You know, as you come through, you get the centrifugal force coming around a curve. And he came around that curve and just hit me head on. 
Well, yeah. well you, you take your speed and his speed and add them together, and that's the impact speed. So if you were Which doing 25 and he was doing 50, that's a 75-mile-per-hour head-on. And that was you, in a you were, you were car. Blessed. Yeah, yeah, you were blessed to survive that. Yeah. And now I got to say, Honda, it's now made in the USA, but they have something they did to reinforce the front end specifically for head on collisions. And I was lucky I was in that Honda. If I was yeah. in the little Chevy that I got instead, that car and I would have been definitely in the hospital or in a coffin. And think about what yeah. would happen now with an electrical car yeah. between the toxic chemicals, the frame. No, you're not going to survive that. And that's a scary, scary thing think but everyone's pushing electrical cars go green go green however you need petrochemicals to make that electrical car every single part of that vehicle requires some form of petrochemicals to create that car so if you stop drilling where are the materials going to come from i'm i'm going to be doing some reporting on that very issue uh in the very near future and you're exactly right um you start thinking about all of the products that we all take for granted and depend upon every day. Most of them, to a greater or lesser degree, uh, require the use of plastics or other materials that are derived uh, in one degree or another from petrochemical uh, things like oil, basically petroleum. Um, it can be it can be refined and it produces so many different um, substances that can be used in so many different ways. That's why you know everything you look at in the typical yeah. American house today is plastic. Well, if we don't have any oil to make the plastic for the stuff that we want to have and need to have, um, you know that's going to be a real problem. So, again, uh, I, as, as we've been saying, the consequences are going to be extensive. They're going to be all through American society. Now, I've, I've challenged people, and not one person has been able to meet the challenge. I said, outside of stepping outdoors and just breathing the air out there, name me one thing that you use, that you come in contact with, that is not does not have anything to do with petrochemicals. Well, I grow my own vegetables. Yeah, now the farmer needed the petrochemicals to run the tractor, to plant the seed. Someone had to package that seed, that again, petrochemicals for the packaging. Uh, you need a shovel to dig, petrochemicals. Every single thing that we come in contact with in one shape or another has some form of a petrochemical or was made from petrochemicals, you know, yeah, right. go into the shower, yeah. the soap, mm-hmm. uh, women, mm-hmm. your makeup, your cell phone, your smart device, everything. Yep. yep. So uh, people don't realize that. And when they do, again, I think a lot of people are going to say, hold on, what are you, what are you doing to us? And I don't think President Biden and the folks in his administration are going to be prepared to answer that question in any way that will satisfy people asking it. Now, if we don't create those petrochemicals by our drilling, who will? It'll be places like China, 
Russia. And Russia. And they have a large influence and a lot of exploration in the Caribbean, South America, Africa, in the Arctic, Antarctic. Uh, They're the ones going after those petrochemicals so that if we need these products and we're no longer making them ourselves, what is it going to do to your wallet? Because now everything has to be made overseas, imported to the United States. If we're not self-sufficient, like we almost were 100 percent under Donald Trump, we was bringing businesses back. Our businesses will flee to these other countries that can produce the products they need to sell back to us. So we lose jobs. We have hyperinflation. And those that can afford to move will leave the United States. And all we will have is a nation of starving poverty like North Korea. And Venezuela. And Venezuela, which once was a very beautiful country. and, And not only a very beautiful country, a very prosperous country and South America's biggest exporter of oil. Mm-hmm. What will happen also when we have the new Green Deal, or the Green New Deal, excuse me, uh, assuming that we ever do actually get it, the result for the environment is going to be disastrous too, precisely because, as you just laid it out, when China is a major producer of emissions through the coal factories that they are building at a rapid rate. They're not building electric factories. They're not building, uh, uh, not factories, excuse me, power plants. They're not building power plants that run on nuclear fuel. They're building power plants that run on coal. So they are, every day they increase the amount of emissions that they put into the atmosphere. And that's going to be, uh, it's going to be a disaster for the environment because the emissions will actually go up. They won't go down as the people who advocate the Green New Deal say they will. Now, um, I'm going to change the subject just a little bit because, you know, this floored me because I know James O'Keefe did an expose on this one. And there's also the Center for Medical Progress uh, that did it a uh, undercover reporter there exposed this a number of years ago and i thought even when uh kermit gosnell was arrested tried and convicted uh for abortions and baby parts uh we stopped the fetal tissue trade but that's Mm -hmm. not true we have it right here in pittsburgh the university of pittsburgh this is really and there's also uh this journalist from the uh, Center for Medical Progress, oh, David uh, Daleden, um, mm-hmm. showing that research labs have racial quotas for ab- aborted by ba- ba- the teeth and backwards, aborted baby body parts. I thought there was this is illegal. I thought there was an input to this, but it's still going on. It's still going on for medical research. Um, the University of Pittsburgh, I'm, I'm not recalling the name of the uh, specific part of the University of Pittsburgh, but it's basically uh, a new uh, program at the University of Pittsburgh that has been federally funded to create, as they describe it, a one-stop shop for medical researchers who need um, body parts from aborted babies. And when we say body parts, we literally mean Arms, legs, livers, hearts, brains, 
you know, you name it. And just think about that. It's horrifying when you think about it, but it's happening right here in America. And they're they're doing it by racial quota because they're saying, well, we have um, these urban areas filled with minorities and they have all these medical problems. So we need tissue that's very similar to the genetic makeup of that neighborhood. So they're mm-hmm. actually they're actually centering in on one racial group of people over, you know, just any just randomly. Isn't this another form of genocide by promoting abortions of black, Hispanics, and other minorities? Well, you know, Anne, it's it's a sad fact, but Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, was an advocate of eugenics. And eugenics, of course, one of the things that the eugenicists advocated was the, uh, as they put it, purifying the human race by getting rid of the lower, less intelligent um, black folks. And it, it, just, it just astounds me when I see that the big majority of abortions in this country uh, are black babies. We, we are. We have a legalized genocide against black babies. It's, it's unbelievable. Man, it, it breaks that should my not heart. happen. That should not happen in America. It shouldn't happen anywhere. No, no, it does. It just simply breaks my heart. Uh, Mark, I know that you can only stay with us for just a few more seconds. Um, you're the uh, congressional correspondent for the Epic Times. People can find you yes. at uh, theepictimes.com. And I do get mine. I, I didn't get my newspaper today yet. I'm, I'm hoping it's in the mailbox when I go out there. But I, I always crack up because when I do get it, I love to see friends of mine having articles in there, such as uh, Gordon Chang, um, Trevor Loud, and uh, Jim Simpson, you know, all, all these are dear friends of mine. So I always get a kick when I, I see them in there. And now you. So uh, it's, it's a fantastic newspaper. And I encourage everyone to go online, subscribe to it, and uh, you'll be amazed of the things that you find in there. It's real news. Absolutely. It's not the commie rag. You're going to get real yep. true uh, news. So, Mark, thank you for joining us, and we'll be seeing you again in another two weeks. Oh, I will see you then, and thank you. All right, God bless. Have a great weekend, and happy Friday the 13th. Bye-bye. All right, Mark Tapscott, check him out at the Epic Times. But very interesting, Curtis. Very, very interesting. Um, and I'm also wondering... <laughs> I don't, I don't hear too many responses when you say happy <laughs> Friday the 13th. I wonder how they take that. <laughs> I haven't heard one person say, oh, thanks. <laughs> I will. <laughs> oh, man, but, oh, man, oh, man. Oh. Uh, but anyway. Um, you know, I, I don't know if anyone was hearing the roar of thunder that was going on behind me, uh, but I'm right smack in the heart of the Tri-Command here in South Carolina. I've got the Marine Corps Air Station in one direction. Uh, i got the Naval Hospital in the other, and in the third direction, I've got the Parasad Marine Corps Recruit Depot. Uh, so these guys at the air station have been firing up for the last two days because... President Obama, oh, lo and behold, decided to pull out 
of Afghanistan without a real good plan. So what does he do? Um, He sends an envoy to the Taliban and begs them, begs them, pretty please, be nice to us. You know, let us keep our U.S. embassy open. You know, don't attack us. And we'll work with you when you take over the new government. So that's not working out too well. And people are fleeing. Uh, There is now a movement of Afghan women taking up arms to fight the Taliban because there's reports of forced marriages uh, to the members of the Taliban tribes. And they've been taking over strategically city after city after city. And it's just a matter of a very short time that uh, Kabul will fall. It's, it's not about if, it's about now, how soon, when. And, you know, uh, you, you said Obama, President Obama. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Biden. But <laughs> you might as well say he's, he's like a mini-me Obama. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the third term of Without Obama. the charisma but, and without the, yeah. um, the memory. <laughs> well, now Biden... Is saying, well, we didn't do this quite right, so we got to protect our members of the embassy and get them out safely. So we're going to send 3,000 Marines in. And in the interim, when they did pull out, they promised, they promised the government, the Afghan government, we'll help protect you by sending flights over and do bombing raids for you. Well, that never materialized. It was an empty promise. He broke his promise. So what makes him think if he broke the promise to the Afghan government to protect them, that if the Taliban doesn't attack our embassy, that we won't touch them. No, we're sending over 3,000 Marines, and I'm telling you there's got to be a whole wing of air going out over there too for the Marine Corps to back them up and give them cover, which is why I heard all these flights going over. I, I mean, Yeah, I, I, I did hear the, um, the flybys. Um, before mm-hmm. the show, I heard the um, the roar of the jets and things. Cause, you know, I'm Navy. I was on an aircraft carrier, and I know even now I can I can tell the difference up in the air if it's a military aircraft or a civilian. You know, you just get to know those things after you hear them so much. But yeah, I, yeah. I agree. Uh, they they are not living up to their promises, as you know, which is characteristic of the left you know they make all these promises when they're campaigning and whatnot and then their real agenda comes out but i think he got really caught off guard because of you know the developments but then i mean think about this we we had a lot of of our military you know men and women over there dying to um liberate that country and now we're just letting the Taliban take over again. You know, what did they fight for? What did they, did they die for? It's almost like Vietnam again to me. We lost yeah. 58,000 plus. And what happens? Um, North and South Vietnam, they they reconstituted. You know, they merged. So what's the point? No, that is a very good question. What is the point? You know, why did we go over there to begin with? You know, if you're going to go, go with a specific reason, a solid target, and a plan of action. And when you do decide to leave, you leave a place that's stable. But we didn't do it in Iraq. We did not do it in Vietnam. And we are not doing it in Afghanistan. 
So our men and women that went over there because we asked them, let's get the enemy overseas before they attack us again here. Well, we've left ourselves wide open at this point because with the southern border open, we don't know who's coming across the border. Now, some I've mentioned this many times, but back in the 1990s, when they were talking about the invasion coming over the southern border, I believe it was somewhere around 98, I don't remember if it was Time or Newsweek, they called them OTMs, other than Mexicans. And the signs, as you crossed over, were in English, Spanish, and Chinese. Chinese. Why would we have the southern border with signs directing immigrants in Chinese? You would think it would be in Spanish. But no, Chinese. But at that same time in the 1990s, they were finding prayer shawls and Korans being discarded in the desert coming over the southern border. We knew about this three decades ago. And... Trump had it under control at one point, and now it's wide open. We have no idea who's coming over that border. If they're Chinese, if they're terrorists, if they're Taliban, Hezbollah, Al-Qaeda, we don't know. We don't know what's coming over. And I really, it is, I don't think this administration care as long as they can get people over here. Um, spread them all out through, throughout the United States, especially in um, red states, to dilute the conservative um, stronghold on these states so they can create more Democrat voters and more dependent, you know, Democrat voters. That's, I think that's what their plan is. They don't, they don't look at the dangers involved as far as um, people coming over here to spy for China or people to come over here to fight a jihad, you know, from the Middle East. They they don't think about that or they they don't care, you know. It's all about their power and staying in power. That's what I believe is behind this no borders movement. Yeah, and now, you know, our border patrol agents are are taxed to the utmost. And when I read the uh dedication to those that passed away in law enforcement from COVID, the vast majority of those uh, law enforcement officers, be they federal government or local LEOs, um, were at the southern border. And now they're pulling agents from across the nation to go down to the southern border. And you now have uh, Governor Abbott taking things into his own hand. He says that the federal government is not going to protect us. It is our duty to protect us. It is their duty to protect themselves. And we need more southern border governors to do the same thing. I mean, this is out of hand. It's good to have governors that are not like Cuomo. (laughs) You know, they can reason Mm -hmm. and see what's going on. You know, they're not sending people to their death, you know, like former governor of New York who's gotten away with that so far. The guy should be going to prison. Well, um, the uh, House, uh, the, the New York State House, I believe, still has an open investigation on that issue. Um, 
Governor Cuomo, when he handed in his reg- resignation two days ago, he said it would, be, it would be effective in 14 days. And the first thing that flashed through my mind is why 14 days? Why not make it effective as of midnight that day? What is wrong with the lieutenant governor that she cannot step in to the power vacuum that you're leaving? Why is she not capable at that moment to take over immediately? I mean, if he had died in office, she would have to do that. So why the 14-day wait? Is he looking to see if they can pull a rabbit out of the hat last minute and say, well, I'm going to rescind my resignation. I'm staying. I'm waiting to see something like that happen. And how much you want to bet he'll end up on CNN with his brother? (laughs) Oh, God. So no. I'm, well, I'm, you know, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. He'll never have to rely on on me to, as a viewer, you know. <laughs> uh, I'm just going like to wait for the Alec, other shoe to drop. Be like that Alec um, Baldwin, you know. That guy had a radio show nobody listened to, and he didn't <laughs> even know how to. to <laughs> he didn't even know how to conduct himself as an interviewer, you know. Nobody was calling in or anything. I know. But he has no problem I, I, calling his daughter and, um, you know, chewing her, her out, out, cussing her out. He got no problem doing that. Nice daddy. You have to get nice him angry. Daddy. Well, God, <laughs> God bless the girl. state of Texas. Because um, we had those Texas legislators, those 52 uh, men and women, flee the state of Texas so they didn't have to vote on this election reform bill down in Texas. And it went back and forth, back and forth through the courts. And finally, they said, yes, you can issue warrants for their arrest. So the Speaker of the House issued the, war- the warrants for the 52 uh, congressional members that you know left. Uh, so the next thing you know is that, oops, they're back in the state all of a sudden. And Texas voted on the election reform bill after a Democrat finally ended her filibuster, a 15-hour filibuster she finally ended and the bill, Senate Bill Number One, passed, eighteen to eleven. So yeah, it's great. We we've had some victories here. I also heard that the Supreme Court came up with a uh, a decision that was a major blow to Democrats, and it had to do with uh, um, the census and uh, gerrymandering. Um, they said that the federal judges will be removed from that that process and it's left right. up to the states to, to make those decisions and that's going to hurt the Democrats big time because you know their fallback has always been when they couldn't get anything done legislatively they would go to the courts and they, right. they won't be able to do that now unless they just outright no. disobey the Supreme Court I don't know how they can do that because there is something that the Supreme Court recently ruled on, and the Democrats in this administration is ignoring it, you know. So it's like, wow, you know, we live in a a, a time of lawlessness. Absolutely, absolutely. They, the Supreme Court basically determined that, as per the Constitution, it is the power of the state legislators to determine. It is not the federal government's power. So they took that one huge tool away from the Democrats. And you could say, you know, Republicans, too, they equally lost the ability to do that. 
but you know with this new liberal socialistic democratic party it was a powerful weapon and with the census everyone is starting to redraw the districts you got california is losing a seat and there's other states that are picking up seats when people moved from those blue states and came to red states those votes went with them which affected the census so now, it's... Go ahead. you know, a lot of Republican states are incorporating um, measures to protect um, the next election that comes up, you know, voter um, security type of, um, legislation. And if you listen to the liberal news stations, and I occasionally do when I'm flipping through the radio in the car, they are saying like um, that the, the Republicans are denying them their rights to vote and this and that and the other. It's just, it's just so amazing how they script a storyline that is the opposite of really what we're doing, and yet they lead with their policies with names like the Affordable Care Act. That's anything but affordable and other programs mm-hmm. they have. They always attach some kind of, um, you know, um, tear at your heartstring, you know, um, name or label to get people to, to support it when it, it means really the opposite. But when we Absolutely. mean something, you know, they make it sound like we, we're the KKK reincarnated and Jim Crow and all that. When in fact, <laughs> we're the ones that fought all that. You know, they're saying Georgia tightened up their voter requirements which caused that huge boycott and the the all-star game being yanked from atlanta which made no sense because they took the all-star game from atlanta that had a large black population and a lot of those individuals had businesses that oh yeah profited businesses from from the from having the game there Events like that. and they take it yeah. to a, another city that had a very small black population and not a lot of black owned or minority owned businesses. So the very people you claim to be trying to represent and help are the very people you hurt by yanking them. But Georgia, what they did was they said, you need voter ID and they tightened the restrictions on absentee voting. So it's going to be harder to uh, steal those votes. And everything has to be verified and authorized. They've even extended voting hours and the t- the dates of voting. They extended that to allow more people access. And they also put in place specific drop boxes. So now, yes, you're going to have the drop boxes, but they're going to be far more secure so the votes cannot be tampered with. They'll be monitored and everything else. So what they did was they made it easier, in effect, to vote. But what the left is saying is that, hey, you know, them people, they're too dumb to get an ID. Really? Are you really going to be that racist? Which is what they are. Which is exactly what they are. You don't vote the way that you feel you should vote, but you're going to vote the way we want you to. And if you don't, we're going to alter your vote through any method of trickology. I mean, they are just twisting this voter integrity um, um, program 
to 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 just mean you know that we don't care we are anti minority and but think about it when you go take a flight or something like that you need to show id um when you go to usually say like um i would say like to to get liquor or something you know if they think you're underage you got to show you know an id I mean, even the Democrat National Convention, you can't get in without showing an ID. Yet, when now, it comes to voting, oh, we don't need IDs. That's oppressive. That's that's racist. Right. You know, to, to expect right. these people to go out and get an ID. Now, I, I don't know if she has it up on her her website or even on her Facebook page, but my state uh, representative, not state, my federal representative in Congress is Nancy Mace. And I believe it was last Saturday, if anyone wants to Google it, Nancy Mace uh, was questioning one of these 52 D.C. Democrats um, about the Texas, um, yeah, the Texas voting law. And this woman, uh, Nancy Mace, went up one side and down the other and broke her entire argument apart. She asked the person, um, do you need to show ID when you go into a federal building? Yes. Uh, do you need to present ID when you go to the bank and cash a check? Yes. Uh, when you took a private plane from Texas to Washington, D.C., did you need to show ID? Yes. Well, I've never flown on a private plane, but when you fly commercial, do you need to show ID? Yes. Um, you need to show ID when you take a book out of the library. Yes, and she went up and down every which way. Everyday things that people do, how many times do you require an ID unless you know the clerk knows you? Like you said, go into a liquor store, they don't know you, they're gonna ID you. Um, I go through the grocery line, if I pick up a bottle of wine, they're gonna say, well, let me see your ID. Um, it, it is just completely ridiculous. She tore her apart and said, all these things, these everyday things that Americans are able to do, requiring ID and still function in their life. So why wouldn't we ask then the simple question of presenting your ID so we can verify you are the real one voting and it is your vote to protect your vote? She couldn't answer. She could not answer. It was a brilliant piece of work by Nancy Mace. So if anyone just uh, Google Congressman Nancy Mace and that testimony, uh, I believe it was last Saturday. It was, it was brilliant. Absolutely, absolutely marvelous. Anyway, uh, we're down to our last, inside our last 10 minutes here, Curtis. I wanted to mention one other thing. There is a gentleman out there, John Cass, K-A-S-S. Check out his website, johncassnews.com. He has a series of wonderful articles uh, talking about Chicago police officer Ella French, who was murdered after a traffic stop on a bloody weekend. And then Mayor Lori Lightfoot made her big. It is three different articles. And, oh, my goodness, this guy just blew her out of the water. I was trying to get him on the show today, but he didn't respond to my emails. Uh, but it, it was absolutely brilliant. And he interviewed some of the uh, officers and their family members. 
And holy moly, the firestorm that he exposed in his articles at John Cass, K-A-S-S, JohnCassNews.com is, is wonderful. Wonderful. I mean, I I was cheering for every word that I read of his. I mean, he just nailed her. Nailed her. Like, you, unbelievable. About the hypocrisy and her timing and everything else. And it's a series of three articles. Well, I haven't been on there today, but it was one after another, one day after another. And he just went after her. Mayor Lightfoot lost in her field of dreams. Uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot has so repeatedly botched her response to the murder of Chicago police officer Ella French. And she's so angry about criticism she's getting from cops that she's losing it. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Uh, wow. So I mean, I, I'm hoping that you know he does finally, and maybe get him on at a later date. But I'm telling you, it was it was a great, great, great uh, series of articles he did on that one. Now um, I'm trying to see uh, if we have people already. I think we're starting to line up people for next Friday, and I'm trying to pull that up to see if I can get it. Uh. And no, I have not. I know I got someone coming up for next week. I'll be damned if I can remember who it is now. I'm going to have to go through my emails. But uh, you got anything? You're not going to be with us next week, right? Where are you going to be at? Right. I'll be in Orlando at a a big little powwow the Republican Party of Florida is having. And they call it quarterly. So that starts on Thursday and ends Sunday. So I will not be available but the, the week after that, I will be be back on the air, the airwaves. But I I can you know see if I can uh, contribute to a, a guest next week, you know between now okay. and Monday. Okay. And, and I'll, I got I'll a question too. To I'm just I'm, I'm a What's little that? puzzled here. Now the governor of North Carolina, he's a he's a Democrat, and right. I think his name is. Uh, Cooper, Roy Cooper, right? Now, the lieutenant governor is Mark Robinson. He was a guest of ours. And I I was pretty sure he was a Republican, a conservative. Now, I'm starting to wonder how can you have a a governor that's a Democrat and a lieutenant governor that's a Republican, unless Mark isn't. He may have ran as independent. I don't know. No, no, he runs on a separate ticket. They vote separately for governor and lieutenant governor, if I remember correctly. Okay, well, they're, that's they're different. Not, because not, it's yeah. not party, um, like, you know, the party wins, they get to, to select the lieutenant. Because in Florida, it's a little different. You know, we it's like the presidency. You know, whoever wins the presidency gets to pick the... Right. All right, I'm just a little concerned here. <laughs> no, because I, I remember the interview, and I do believe it was an active campaign. He had a separate campaign, and he, okay, they run separately. Well, good for him. And, yeah. and I don't know what it is about these guys. They're either super busy or their staff just becomes like a insulator between them because it's the same thing with Burgess Owens. You know, before they, they got in the office, you know, Burgess is in Congress now. We have full access to them, and like now it's like, wow, try to get to the president or something. <laughs> well, well they, they get respond. all scooped up by 
they all get scooped up by Newsmax, One American News. <laughs> so, you know, they, they get up with the big boys and then they forget about where they came from. Anyway. Well, uh, when, but, I, when I get their hair again, I'm going to give them an earful. I get their hair again. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I, that's, that's just about all we got for today. Um, I, I think that's all I got right now. And I did get the the uh, Xfinity to run the cable from the public box up to my house. It's just now waiting to mm-hmm. find when they're going to actually install it so I can get it up and get accustomed to running it. It'll probably be a couple more weeks because then I have to get accustomed to running the program so I don't uh, fluff it up too badly. <laughs> we don't want something like last week. <laughs> where mm. everything, just anything that could go wrong last week did go wrong. But despite the fact yeah. today is Friday the 13th, we went pretty smoothly. So I want to thank everyone that joined us in the chat room here on Blog Talk Radio and those that were up in the uh, uh, listening or watching live over on YouTube and Facebook. I've been following on both computers uh, just checking what everyone's doing. And Doc, yes, I'll give you the check. It's about a million dollars you owe me. <laughs> so want to thank everyone and we will be back here same bet time same bet station next friday uh i got that's all i got for now curtis that's all i got yep well all i can say is just have a safe fun weekend and we'll we'll see y'all again in the near future all right just watch out for tropical storm fred that's coming through meanwhile i'll leave you all yeah, with right. my buddy gary gary pecorella and the song save america i love this song Until then, I say good night and God bless. I have loved and lost in that